This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 494 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Denise Olson. Now, Denise is a nurse, a yoga teacher, and she's the widow of Jeff Olson, one of the 343 firefighters killed on 9-11. So we discuss a host of topics from her early life, her perspective on healthcare, meeting Jeff and his incredible story into the fire service, the events of that day, and then also processing that grief and raising children after such traumatic event. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating this show gets truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Denise Olson. Enjoy. Well, Denise, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. So it's crazy because we've been connected online for a while now, and then we just had a little you know, discussion prior to this, um, and I realized that we're, just, we're connected in a number of ways through OEW, Operation Enduring Warrior, through the Give Team here in Orlando, through GORUCK. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation because obviously the, the awesome humans that you surround yourself with seem to be the similar humans that I do. I know. I think that there's always a golden thread, I like to call it, that brings certain people into your life. And somehow, even though everyone says the world is so big, it becomes really small when you have uh, a specific passion or focus. Yeah. Well, especially, and I've been talking about this a lot recently, when you find yourself amongst groups that we just mentioned, and yet you turn the TV on and there's division and hate and everything, and you're like, no, <laughs> no, yes, those people exist. And I don't know why you're giving them all this TV time, but there are so many great people if you just, as you said, you know, choose who you actually spend time with, choose who you get your information from. You'll be amazed how many inspiring and kind and compassionate human beings are in this country and then overseas as well. I think it's, I think that um, if people turn their TVs off and spent more time actually getting to know the stories of other individuals, there wouldn't be so much division. I, I don't, that entire period of, um, I mean, I guess quarantine, the politics around it, I, I was very specific in how I curated my social media, who I spoke to, the conversations that I had, the conversations I avoided, because um, it's important, even though we're only 
one person, you know, I'm only one person. I believe that um, there's a ripple effect in everything. So if I can hold my space as an individual and just come from my heart, not looking at uh, race, gender, or any of these other things that they use to try to divide us, then uh, it just spreads out organically. You don't even have to try. <laughs> yeah, I agree completely. Well, I want to get into to that little conversation um, at a certain point in this this uh, chronological walkthrough that we're going to do. But let's uh, let's start at the very beginning. Well, firstly, before we even do that, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Today, I am at home in Manasquan, New Jersey. Brilliant. Okay, so then let's start at the beginning. So where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings? Okay, I was born on Staten Island, suburb of New York City. Um, I have one sister, one brother, I'm the oldest. My parents, uh, my father is a financial person. He works in, he's retired now, but he worked in a lot of major hospitals throughout New York. And my mom, did medical billing. She was, she was a manager. Uh, when she worked, she retired at a pretty young age. <laughs> so, um, my family dynamic, I would say that we were average middle-class family. Um, I went to Catholic school my entire life. And when I say entire life, I don't just mean grammar school, but I went to Catholic high school. I went to uh, Catholic nursing school, <laughs> which will come into play later, which is why I bring it up. I call myself a reformed Catholic. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so I guess um, we, we were really average. I don't have too much to say about my family. We were, we my parents went to work every day. We went to school um, and we didn't really do a lot of traveling. Um, it was kind of like, I don't, we just went outside and played with our friends. <laughs> there was not, there wasn't, there's not a whole lot to say about it. So, well, an interesting perspective. So you have a father who works on the financial side of hospitals just mm -hmm. as a complete tangent, I love tangents. Um, that's why I like these organic, you know, walkthroughs. Um, did he ever talk about any perspective of the pros and cons of the way we do medicine in this country? And again, I'm not demonizing or anything, but there's, there's definitely a profit based element that is different to the national health that I came from in England. Um, and you know, what I've seen through my eyes is, is sadly when, when there's money to be made, sometimes you deviate from health and you, you know, you focus more on, on the bottom line. Without loading the question, did he ever have any kind of uh, philosophies or, or perspectives on, you know, what we do well and what we could maybe do better in the US specifically? It's an interesting question because my dad is a numbers guy and uh, it was, you know, profits the name of the game for him, period. I think that that changed when 
or or I should say he softens around the edges with that when um, they both retired and you're sort of relying on uh, the healthcare system as it is. You know, he doesn't, they have, they both have, uh, I believe it's Medicare, right, for the elderly and um, having to pay for your own insurance if you want to have a better plan than what's offered to you and however that works. I know that that was a struggle for them. Medication is expensive and uh, we're fortunate in our family to be able to afford those things, but he does see how difficult it is for many, many people in that specific age range to be able to uh, obtain adequate health care and prescription medications. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I mean, it's just so interesting hearing people's stories. You know, we get told these nice little neatly presented arguments on on certain TV mm-hmm. stations. And, you know, it's just important. And I think that's just it. I love the phrase, they did the best with what they had, because that that's it. We can't demonize the past if, you know, in the environment, that was the norm. But it's a very powerful perspective when people look back and go, ah, now I get it. Now I see. And coming from a country which sadly has had their healthcare system stripped by politics, you know, rather than bolstered and, you know, strengthen the concept of everyone in the nation contributing to making sure that everyone is taken care of. I think that's a very insert, you know, religion here philosophy. You know, I think it's a philosophy that comes from kindness and compassion. And if you don't get to use it, that's a good thing. That means you didn't get hit by a car or get cancer. Beautiful. Good for you. But in the meantime, you take care of the people that that need it. You know, and I think it also fosters a more proactive view of of health in, in general versus if there's money to be made, your best customer is the sick individual. And I think that, you know, that kind of shows itself on the health of our nation at the moment, which I think COVID really held a mirror to. I am with you 100% on that. I know that in other countries, preventative care is the top tier of their healthcare system, which unfortunately is not the case in the United States. Um, and I wanted to just jump back to the question about my dad. It's when when I was younger. Um, I mean, our healthcare system has changed significantly in the past fifty years. So when I was younger, you had a general practitioner. Your entire family went to the same doctor, right? There were no specialists. You didn't have to get a pre-approval. Just went to the doctor. They looked you over, and whatever the issue was, was taken care of. Now, because of insurances and all of that, you, every, a, a doctor can't afford to have their own practice. So there's so many groups, you lose the personalization, you, you, you lose um, the continuity of care. And as a nurse, I, I was able to see all of that as, as, it was changing. So I agree that being able to have a healthcare system where everyone is taken care of is important. I don't think we've reached that yet. Um, It's hard. It's hard in a capitalist society to ask people that are raised with the mindset that 
if I, if you have something, there's not enough for me, right? Um, to be responsible for people that they don't know. You know, that's, that's what I think creates all the arguments around, around the, um, transition that we're trying to make happen in healthcare. But, uh, somehow right now it's like the, 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 uh, working middle class are the ones that suffer the most under our current healthcare system. I don't, there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues with it. Yeah. Well, it seems as well, we have, like you said, medic Medicare, where we do take care of the elderly, we have Medicaid, you know, we take par- care of people that, that, you know, most of whom actually need it. Some of whom, of course, there's an abuse of everything. And those are the examples that are always brought to the front of the, the, the room, but negating yeah. the fact that whether it's welfare, whether it's Medicaid, you know, there are many, many people that it really helps them out of a tough place and then they, they get back on track. Um, but then you have, um, you know, the VA we take care of our veterans. And again, it may not be perfect from what I've heard as well. You know, there's a lot of pills being thrown at those men and women rather than proactive preventative care. Mm -hmm. So, but we have that philosophy in place. But what's really, we get a very strong perspective because as you said, nurse, doctor, you know, first responder, we get to see behind the curtain. We get to see the true health of our nation and the true um, efficiency of our current system. But also in the first responder community, police, fire, you know, EMS, once you're done, you're done. Bye. Here's all the injuries. Mm-hmm. Here's all the mental health. Good luck. Your insurance right. stops tomorrow. You know, so I think there's no better group of people than the, the responders and, and the medical profession to really understand like, oh, okay, you know, as soon as you're done with me, that's it. You kind of, you kind of flung out the back door. And that sounds harsh, but it is what it is. There's no VA for first responders. So, um, you know, I think it, there's this, this if we want to advocate and want to change, imagine if you didn't have to worry about every, every profession that you respect, that you knew that they were going to be taken care of throughout the rest of their life. But, you know, right now, it, it kills me that the first person you see isn't a doctor or a nurse. It's a, it's an admin clerk asking for your social security number. And I just think that is the opposite of what, you know, Socrates and, I mean, sorry, um, Hippocrates <laughs> and some of these, these ancient minds were predicting, you know, healthcare was going to be. Yeah. Um, I have, I have so many thoughts around all of that. I'm fortunate. Uh, the fire department, um, they take care of us even after retirement. It may not be perfect, but there's, uh, I, I, I have health care that I don't actually even pay for until I die from my, just from my husband's short amount of service in the fire department. Um, but getting back to that, I, I, I don't even think it's about, it's about, uh, People that I res- I feel like everyone should be entitled to adequate health care. This isn't something that you should even have to earn, right? You, sh- you, you should just be able to go to a doctor if you're sick and get taken care of. Um, there's, there's really different, different, uh, I want to call it almost like an, a hierarchy of care. And like you were saying, the VA, um, 
it's there. Is it adequate? I, I, I honestly don't think so. So I think a lot of these things um, sound good on paper and the philosophy behind it is excellent. I don't think that the practice actually reflects the philosophy. Um, but we're working. We're working towards making it better, right? There's been a lot of awareness brought, especially especially to the VA. And I guess their mental health support mostly because the VA does have some of the best doctors in our country, but the, um, it's the wait times and the ability to be seen and treated. And especially when it comes to mental health issues. Yeah, no. And I agree completely. I wasn't saying that, uh, oh, we should, you know, like you say, you should earn the healthcare. I think if it, if it's a hard sell, you can use those groups to push a point. But my thing is, no, absolutely, everyone should have it. And I'm 47 years old. I don't even have a doctor, so I'm not recipient of of this at all. And I'm, you know, I'm advocating for it because I think it's the right thing to do. It's it's an ethical yeah. thing. Isn't it funny? I don't I don't actually have a family doctor either, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier that we we used to have a family doctor that knew every you know knew the you didn't go to a pediatrician or or a pulmonologist or you you would just go to your family doctor. Now you have to be seen by a specialist for everything, which has its positives. But um, it really does lack the personal feel of someone caring about what's best, not just for you, but for your entire family. Yeah. So my my grandfather was 99 years old and riddled with cancer. And the same family physician we'd had growing up as kids was the same man that came to the house and you know visited him till he finally passed away and that was all under national health they had as you were talking about like the the medicaid thing they had the over and above extra insurance they paid for their whole life and they basically got priced out when they actually got to the age they were really going to start using it they couldn't afford mm -hmm. the premiums and they paid you know god knows how much that tens and tens of thousands of pounds and then for nothing you know they basically shut them down so all that great care was through the NHS. So I always tell people, like, if you hear these stories of people being written off, a 99-year-old man riddled with cancer, that's, if you're going to write someone off, it's him. And he got yeah. as good a care as I've ever seen in any country on planet Earth through the national health. So like you said, that original local family physician, you know, understanding the family dynamic, and, and that requires, you know, funding and staffing and all these things too, but I mean, I saw it with my own eyes as a child through the family physician all the way through to to my my grandfather passing when I held his hand, you know, and then seeing the care of them visiting my grandmother for a couple of weeks after that, which you don't see here at all. So I know that is so beautiful. It really changes the the experience of and the energetics around um, being ill for everyone. It elevates, you know, you, you have, there's, there's a true compassion. There's a true connection between the doctor and the patient and the doctor and the family. And then all of that, just even if it's an end of life issue, it brings peace. It brings comfort rather than that sterile feeling of being in a hospital, bright lights, you know, tubes all over the place. So, uh, 
Yeah, that's really, that's actually a beautiful story or experience. Yeah, no, it was. And, and he got to, got to pass away, you know, in his family home. So, mm-hmm. and there, you know, there are so many amazing nurses and doctors and everything. So I want to make sure, you know, it's, it's creating an environment for them to become the best version of themselves, to spend the quality time with the patient, the proactive measures so we don't have so many patients in the first place, you know, so they can right. put more resources to the people that are truly fighting things that weren't preventable, um, which I think, you know, would minimize a huge amount of the issues that we deal with. So, yeah, but it is, you know, I'm not just soapboxing it, you know, these are personal stories that I saw. So, you know, you hear some of the demonization of of the NHS from our own people from overseas. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I disagree. I 100% disagree. I think it's a beautiful philosophy if it's funded properly. I agree. I agree. I know every time I, I can't even, when I bring that conversation up with my father, he's like, you want socialized medicine? He starts to get crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, look at the labeling. Socialized medicine. Sounds like Lenin came up with it, you know? So. I know. I know. I think it's funny because that goes back to the original question about his um, ideas around around our healthcare system. It's funny. Yeah. Well, that was a hell of a tangent, but it's a powerful one. I think it was great that we got to discuss it. So, with you know, returning to your timeline, um, you know, we're going to talk about your most recent adventure which is going to involve you know a certain amount of exercise so when you were (laughs) school age were you an athlete back then um I was I don't think I never considered myself a a, I never considered myself an athlete which is funny because I was always playing something but I don't think I accept I I have this uh I hate to say it, but I have like this perfectionist personality. So um, even though I'm so laid back, it's sort of this internal dialogue that I have with myself. So if I'm not the best or really good at something, I don't even. So I I, I played basketball, gosh, like my, majority of my life. I was never great. I'm not that tall. <laughs> But I played. Um, I just went to my high school reunion on Friday and I forgot all about this, but I was on the inaugural soccer team for my high school. Terrible at that, but still played. (laughs) Um, Played softball. You know, I was always doing I was always doing something and I've always been active. Brilliant. Now, when you were at that school age, what were you dreaming of becoming career wise? Hmm. I actually thought that I I knew that I wanted to um, serve in some way, shape, or form. So I was, it was either a teacher. I'm also a big nerd with books and reading, and um, so I love I love school. I mean, obviously, I'm still doing a mentorship now at um, my age, but. Uh, so I, it was either a teacher or a nurse. Um, I went through this short period where I was like, Oh, maybe, maybe I want to be a stockbroker or something. (laughs) The glamour of working in New York city. And, um, but I, I love science and, uh, I'm pretty good in 
I used to be pretty good in math as I get older. That's that functions dwindling away. And I've always, I've always been a caretaker. I've always been a caretaker. Um, when we were young, if somebody got hurt, my, what, you know, my sister, we'd go bike riding, my sister would fall off her bike or whatever. I would be cleaning her cuts out, bandaging them up. So, uh, yeah, those, that was pretty much, those were, those were my, um, early childhood dreams. The other thing, which not many people know, and I don't really speak of it often because it's kind of funny. Um, I want to say I was in the fifth grade. I thought I wanted to be a nun. I told you I went to Catholic school for my whole life. So I thought I wanted to be a nun. And um, I made the big mistake of telling the nun that was my teacher that I was thinking of that. And um, I don't even know how long this lasted, but I had to go to the convent every day with her, say decades of the rosary, clean the convent, and... I mean, I loved being there because it was so peaceful. And this, this also, um, th- there are certain seeds that I think are planted in us before we even get here. And this is part of like that spiritual energy that is so strong in me now. Uh, when I was young, like I loved being in the convent and I loved um, the rituals of, you know, they say prayers at certain times. They're so devoted. Um but then I found boys and I was like, forget this. <laughs> there were boys in the convent? Well, I didn't find them in the convent. <laughs> they were I found them the outside pews. the convent. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, who, who the hell wants to do that? <laughs> so that was the end of it. Brilliant. Well, when we'll get into, I kind of sense something with that spiritual path in one of the podcasts that I heard before. So I definitely want to make sure I, I visit that. Just before we move on, um, a reoccurring theme with people who have struggled mental health wise and and you know I'm not saying that that you particularly have you know as far as um, you know where you found yourself in that journey but it's always a, a good question to ask I think before we move on a lot of the common denominators of some people that did find themselves in a the dark place was mm-hmm. an element of childhood trauma and that could be something very severe or it could be not feeling love could be one parent always at work, you know, whatever it was. When you look back with that kind of mental health, you know, perspective that you have now, are there any elements of your childhood that you consider traumatic? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I I, I mean, I don't ever, I, I don't like to speak about this because I would hate for my parents to feel that, uh, the environment that they created for me was less than stellar. Um, and it goes back to that saying of they did the best with what they had, but my mother grew up in a very, very, very um, dysfunctional family riddled with addiction and abuse. Um, my father is actually my stepfather. My parents were divorced when I was two. Don't have a relationship with my biological father. Um, And so growing up, there was a lot of drinking in my home. There was a lot of uh, 
screaming, yelling, um, just poor communication. Uh, I want to say lots of generational trauma, lots of generational trauma just handed down. And I honestly didn't know that there was anything wrong with the way that I even the way that communication took place in my house or uh, I wouldn't, I, I mean, it was violent in its own way, not physically violent, emotionally abusive for sure. Um, so I didn't realize that other families didn't live that way until I was older and I started going to, you know, hanging out at friends' houses and saying, oh, wow, yeah, okay, this isn't the way everybody operates. Um, and that, like I said, the caretaker part, that's part of it, trying to protect your younger siblings, even if it's just from the loud verbal arguments that are happening in another room that are really frightening for young children. So, yes, I will say that there was definitely trauma in my childhood. Yeah, well, I mean, it's something that I've just been educated to my, you know, myself the last few years. And I started asking. Initially, it would come out, and then I started focusing a little bit more, just kind of opening that door. And then all of a sudden, like guest after guest after guest, and like I said, it could. Everyone has their own version of trauma. It could be something absolutely ex extreme, like I had a you know a boy soldier on the show from Sierra Leone, or it could be just simply not feeling loved, being the middle loved. child, you know, whatever it was. But I just finished watching um, a brand new documentary Dr. Gabar Mate just made. Mm, um, and again, him. he's mm -hmm. huge on, on trauma. I'm, I'm, I've tried to get him. I got an initial, he was too busy, but I'm going to keep pursuing him because I think he'd be amazing for this audience. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't think people realize how much that factors in. And when we talk about mental health in the first responder community, the conversation that very, very few people have is what did you bring in before you put that badge on your chest? You know, because that really, to me, then amplifies whatever you see and do in your career. I, 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 can, I can speak on this for hours. Um, an important thing to remember with trauma is that like you were saying, what's traumatic to one person, trauma is not a specific, there's no specific definition because we can both experience the same event. You might find it traumatic, I might not. So it isn't the event itself, it's how we actually process the event. The other thing that's important is that trauma is cumulative. So like you're saying, if you experience trauma as a child, and these don't have to be major traumas, they can be small traumas, but they do accumulate. And I did a research paper on military sexual trauma. And um, the numbers are staggering, staggering. The uh, and it doesn't just happen to women. It's also, it also happens to men. And the common denominator in most, in the majority of the cases was a childhood that included a history of sexual abuse. So, um, 
you're 100% right. When you're looking and not just, not just at first responder communities, but any human, um, if there was a childhood history of trauma, there's likely to be, um, a more pronounced response to traumas that you experience as an adult. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's the problem is we focus on an event and we're going to get to, to, you know, your, one of your acute events in, in a second, but yeah. And then the cumulative one is another one. You know, that's what's so sad with some of these PTSD presumptive laws at the moment is these men and women have to pre- pre- like prove, Oh, I was at, I was at the world trade on, in September, you know, nine 11. And that's my acute event. Well then, you know, you've got everyone else who was obviously very fortunate not to be there, but they did 10, 20, 30 years of regular duty in fire, police, EMS, who, as you said, are accumulating these traumas all the time. And you've got sleep deprivation. You've got all these compounding elements, organizational stress, huge one, you know, working for, for people that just are, are magnifying the stress. Um, but there's no one event to say, oh, it was this dead baby that did it. We've all had dead babies. You know, we all have, but. You know, I think that's the misconception is it's what you saw, which I disagree completely. That is one tiny piece of a much bigger puzzle. Yeah. I mean, even working as a nurse, I I took for granted. I didn't have the knowledge. I knew all about physical trauma, right? But I didn't have the experience or the knowledge around emotional trauma. And uh, I, I really... And I, I think that this is so common in first responder community or healthcare workers, military. The things that you see every day are your norm. You don't even realize that you're that you are being traumatized, right? So I worked in the emergency room. You see one trauma after another. There's a certain, um, well, for example. We, I, I can, this, this was like a horrific experience, but, um, I had a, a young child come in that had been horribly abused that ended up dying. Right. And tending to this, to this dying baby while the parents are there that, you know, did this to them, but you can't, uh, guilt, you know, you're innocent until you're proven guilty. They bring the kid in and, um, the child, the the mother was pregnant on top of it, which is like, you know, it, it, it's so emotional on so many levels. It brings up all of this anger. You're trying to save this kid and the parents are there crying, but you did this. I mean, so it's so horrific. The child ends up dying, but my shift isn't over. So I don't get to sit there and, um, that, that's it. That was a huge, you know, that, that was a huge event. You don't get to sit there and cry or, or, um, feel bad for yourself. Even you just can't process it. You have to compartmentalize it and continue working and move on to the next trauma. So, um, how did I didn't have if if I was doing that job now, the way I would handle that would be so completely different from the way that we handled it regularly back then. Like we would all go out after work and have a drink, you know, completely unhealthy, (laughs) completely lacking coping skills. But it's your everyday life. So you don't say to yourself, wow, that was traumatic. 
You don't think that it's just like, wow, that was a shitty day at work, you know? And I think that that's especially the military when you're deployed and your friend gets blown up and, um, you know, you find out that they, that they, that they died and you don't even have time to grieve. You kind of have to just shut it off and continue on. Mm-hmm. Well, what's crazy as well is that you lock these memories away and I'll give you a perfect example. Just you telling that story. And I, there's many, I, I had this horrific like week, week and a half where I hadn't really had, you know, much pediatric trauma at all. And then I had, you know, two abuse babies that both died. Um, but then there was another one a few years later that I'd totally forgotten about. And, and I remember, I can't even see the, the child's face now, but I think it was like toddler age or not mistaken. And there was something like they, the mother said it slipped in the shower. And that's why it was, you know, unconscious and everything. And, and, and that, that poor little thing passed away as well. But, um, again, there was a huge, huge, you know, chance that that was abuse as well. So, you know, that was, and then we cleaned the gear and went back into service, you know, all of these. I had a shaken baby kid that stayed in a, a convalescent home for a few years and died in my arms. Uh, you know, I think it was four when he died and you clean your gear and you go back to, you know, to service. So all these things just dig into you and, and, you know, you, you don't process them. And, you know, the, 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 um, excuse me, the, there's a Mexican saying, it says, um, they tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. And I love that. Like it's going to come know, out I just eventually. I that recently. I don't know where I read it, but I just read that. That is so, that is so beautiful. You just made me think of something that, that with trauma that I, um, use constantly because, uh, being a yoga teacher and all that, but it stays in your body. Like you can, you might, you might not ever be able to recall specific events that have, that have happened to you, but they are stored in it all the nooks and crannies of your, of your body. So I think this, this leads into a whole other conversation about how you deal with trauma, right? Because a lot of people, myself included, when we experience something that is obviously traumatic, and I mean, this is usually something that brings you to your knees, like life altering, where you decide to um, go get help. And the first help that we all usually reach for healthy. I mean, you know, besides all the other things that we try to do to numb the pain is we look for a therapist, right? That's the most common. You need to go to therapy. In my opinion, and this has changed over the course of, of um, the past 20 years and having so much exposure and experience with trauma, not just my own, but others, is that Talking only goes so far when you're treating trauma. And after that point, you are simply re-traumatizing, the per- asking them to repeat certain stories over and over again, right? You're just embedding it deeper and deeper. You have to move your body. You have to move your body to get trauma out of it, what, what, you know, to really bring it to the surface and, and move past it. Yeah, and it just aligns with with so many success stories that I've heard. Whether it's um, Save a Warrior, 
you know, and they're they're doing a lot of the childhood trauma stuff, but they're also out doing obstacle courses and, you know, all kinds of stuff, whether it's equine therapy, whether it's the the rucks. I mean, you know, there's um you know, diving groups. I mean, you name it, but again, like you said, it's combining therapy with movement. And even I talk about this a lot. Tom Hewitt is a a guy who founded um Surfers Not Street Children in South Africa. And what's beautiful is they take these kids, and it's crazy that a lot of these kids live by the ocean, but they can't swim. They kind of were taught that there were monsters in the ocean. So they get them swimming, they get them surfing. After their session, then they sit on the beach. They're tired. They've got those endorphins going. You know, the sun's on their, their skin. And then they start doing the, you know, the, the, the talk therapy. So again, if you're doing one without the other, it makes perfect sense that you're not going to get the whole holistic, you know, healing experience. And, you know, as, on top of that, the healthier the body gets, the more there's a feeling of well-being. And to me, that more that magnifies, you know, healing even more then. There's, there's a people, people, um, when they hear, especially I'm so tired of hearing PTSD, but um, when you hear that phrase PTSD, a lot of people uh, have the idea that it is just in your mind. And the truth of it is that it's a biological, a neural, uh, it's a neurophysiological reaction, right? So the act of paddling, I have a, I have a dear friend of mine, her name, I'll give her a shout out. Her name is Bonnie Owens and she created um, and trademarked something called kayak therapy. And what she does, she, uh, she is a trauma specialist and she works a lot with first responders in the military and she takes them out kayaking. It serves so many purposes, right? Like you said, it's the movement of the body. But more than that is the simple right left movement, the alternating of the paddling that you're doing in kayaking. It's the same thing that happens when you do a meditative walk or a, or a rock or uh, yoga, any of it, that right left movement increases the um the the like the conversation between the right and the left side of your brain same with emdr exactly exactly so it's a way of do, people that are not comfortable with therapy that aren't into the whole AMZR thing. You take them for a paddle and you get them talking. It's, it's so much less pressure. It's so much less threatening. It's way more intimate. So um, I, I think that the combination of being able to move your body and then Talk about things not in the sense of um, having just repeat your story. Tell me how you feel about this. Tell me how you feel. It's just an organic conversation. Whatever comes up and things get unlocked really easily when there are no preconceived ideas around it, right? Absolutely. Amazing. Well, getting back to your chronological walkthrough then (laughs) – um, Back to me. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, you came out of school, you became a nurse yourself. Tell me about meeting Jeff and then tell me who Jeff was. Oh, okay. So I met Jeff. I started working at St. Vincent's um, 
And Jeff was not yet a fireman. He was working there in building services, which literally means that he was mopping the floors. And um, he used to come up to my unit and I, (laughs) he had this long ponytail. He always wore a baseball cap backwards and um, he had this huge keychain. And Jeff had a very distinctive walk. So I, I would hear him, like we would call, oh, we need this room cleans or whatever. And I would hear him get off the elevator because I could hear his keys rattling. And uh, I would listen to him sometimes in the room with the patients. And they would be, you know, you know, people are, are sick. And I don't know, just for example, say somebody threw up on the floor and he had to clean it up. Often he would go in and people would be so, I'm so sorry. I'm so, you know, and I would listen to him interact with these people. And he was so kind. And if they weren't in a state where they were apologizing or, uh, he would just always start a conversation, always had a joke, always did something to make these people smile. So it wasn't like he just went in and did his job and left. Um, so at some point I started, uh, we started talking to each other and then there were layoffs in the hospital and uh, I hadn't seen him around in a while. So I asked one of his coworkers, Oh, what ha- you know, what happened to Jeff? I thought maybe he got laid off and they said, Oh no, he's on vacation. He's moving into a new house or something like that. So, um, a lot of us were going out after work and one of the people that I work with invited him. So him and I spent the entire, you know, whatever time that we were out talking to each other. And then he uh, asked me out on a date and I went home and said to my mother, um, there's this really great guy at work. Like he's so cool. He's so, Jeff was very unique and that's the only way that I could describe him. But I said, I just can't get past this long hair. Like <laughs> I always dated guys that were kind of, um, I don't want to say preppy. They are usually athletes, but they all went to Catholic school. So they had short hair and they were, and this guy was a complete hippie. So I said to my mother, I don't know. I don't know if I could get past the hair. And my mother was like, hair's a very, like, he could always cut his hair. He's nice. What do you care? Go out. (laughs) Which is not what I expected from her. So we went out and um, I've written about this. You probably read it or heard it somewhere. Our first date, um, he asked me, what do I want out of life? Like, what do I want out of life? I was out to have a good time. I was not thinking we were getting into this conversation. (laughs) So I was like, I don't know. What do I want? Like, I have to answer that right now. I think I need time to think about that. (laughs) And so I sort of just said, I guess I want to be happy. I don't know. I really never, you know, spent time thinking, what's my, what do I really want out of life? So I said, well, what do you want out of life? And he was so clear, 27 years old, and just was so clear. He said, "Um, I want to make a difference. And uh, 
that is Jeff in a nutshell. Like one minute he would be acting like Jim Carrey, hilariously funny. And then the next minute you would be having these um, conversations that were so deep and made you really look at yourself. Um, yeah, he was just this, I, I want to say larger than life because really that's, that's what he was. He wasn't a big guy, but he had this really strong personality. And when I say strong, I don't mean loud. I don't mean he would be in a room and half the time, you know, you wouldn't even know that he was there. You know, if we were out somewhere, he would just be, and I would be the crazy one, right? <laughs> I would be dancing on the bar and I'd look down and he'd be leaning up against the wall, smiling at me like, here she goes again, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, so that was how, that was our first date. Beautiful. Well, when he was doing the, the janitorial work, which I think actually is a great prep for any probationary firefighter if you're mopping floors and picking up shit, just for everyone out there. Because <laughs> that's what you're going to be doing. So, so. True. <laughs> so true. But was he already testing with FD or was that something that came to him after? Well, this is really crazy. He had taken the test like we thought his test had been thrown out because he had taken it. I want to say he was um, 19 years old or eight. I don't, he was, it was the test had been taken years and years before that. He didn't ever expect to be called to the fire department. So um, when we got the letter, he was like, what? He was so shocked. Um, and honestly, he almost didn't take it because him switching from the job that he was doing, he was actually the manager um, of building services. So him moving from that to the fire department as, you know, going into the academy, um, he was taking a, a pay cut. And we had already gotten married at this point and um, I was pregnant with my daughter and uh, he was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if we can afford to take the pay cut. And you know, there are certain things that you just have to, you just have to suck it up. I was like, we'll make it work. This is what you want to do. This is your dream. It's better even for our future. It's more secure. The hospital was always laying people off and you know, who wants to do the job that he was doing for the rest of the rest of their lives. He didn't. So, um, yeah, he said, yes, they did the investigation and, and there he was. Now, did he cut his hair because he got in the academy or were you able to get him to cut his hair before? He cut his hair because, oh God, he cut his hair. Actually, he first cut his hair, um, when my daughter, did he cut his hair when Tori was born? I think he cut his hair first when uh, Tori was born. No, I think that's a lie. I don't remember. I know that he got his hair cut, though, like the short, short haircut for the Academy. And what was funny about it was that when he went to go get his hair cut, I was a nervous wreck. The one who um, was like, oh, I can't get past the hair. When I knew he was going to get his head shaved, 
I was waiting at home like, what if he comes back and I don't think he's attracted? (laughs) (laughs) I was so nervous. And he came back and I was like, Jesus, you should have cut your hair years ago. Um, Jeff had really defined features and that long hair, that crazy long hair just hid everything. So yeah, I still actually have the ponytail. Oh, you do? Brilliant. Yeah, because he was very into Native American um, traditions. So we were supposed to bury it after he cut it. And we didn't really, we, we, he held, we held on to it for a little bit. And then September 11th happened. And then I didn't want to bury it. I wanted to keep it. So I still have it. That's beautiful. Well, with, with, um, that transition. I just had uh, one of the the guys from The Rock on the show, Felix Manjaras, and he was uh, one of the fitness trainers on on the academy. Oh, I there. saw that. Yeah. So I'm having problems. I mean, hopefully by the time people hear this, it will be resolved and done. But I'm for some reason the blooming thing will not upload. So it's still in cyberspace at the moment. But anyway, um, to go from you know a, a desk job to being in a, in a well respected academy. What was that like for Jeff? Did, how did he deal with that transition? Oh God, I, that it was almost um, seamless for him because he really was was meant to be in the in the fire department. It was almost, you know, when when you up level to uh, when you start to do what what your soul's purpose is, things just flow. So that was. That was how it was. Um, He didn't like the studying part of it. And Jeff was not ever, um, he was a big, he was a big outdoorsman. So he was always kayaking and um, camping and hiking and that kind of stuff, fishing. He was a huge fisherman, but he wasn't into sports. So I think the um, running for time and all of that stuff in the beginning was uh, you know, I want to say it was a lot of, it was a lot of work, but, um, yeah, he just got himself into a rhythm and the Academy flew by. It really did. Beautiful. Where did he find himself assigned? Uh, 10 and 10 right down on Liberty street. Liberty in Greenwich. That was so when uh, Jeff graduated from the academy, they were still doing what was called the rotation. So you would come out of your, I believe it was 13 weeks in the academy, and then uh, you were assigned a permanent house. You would start there, and then you would spend, it was supposed to be, um, I think originally it was supposed to be a year in each house, but that wasn't how it worked out. Um, so he spent some time at 10 and 10 and then the New York city firehouses are labeled a, B and C depending upon, uh, fire duty and EMS runs their level of activity. And you were supposed to rotate through each one of each of those houses. This way you get to see all different scenarios right and different personalities and different ways of um different leadership styles and all of that so he went from 10 and 10 to a house in brooklyn uh 246 169 
he spent a year there. And then from there, he went to Ladder 175 in East New York. Um, and then back to 10. Now, with 10 and 10, I mean, obviously, most people will recognize that as the closest firehouse to the World Trade. Um, you know, I've, I've been there. I made sure I didn't go over and say hi and everything because I'm sure those poor men and women get bombarded by every single firefighter from planet Earth coming, coming to say hello. But, um, you know, we, we went in the memorial and the museum and all these things. And so it's very, very hallowed ground, I think, in the fire service. But, Prior to 9-11, what kind of runs was he going on? Because, I mean, it's it's a very nice, you know, uh, Manhattan station. So I'm I'm assuming there weren't, you know, a, a lot of structure fires. It's not, you know, old, old right. um, brownstones or anything. I'm assuming, you know, there wasn't, um, you know, a lot of violent crime in that particular area. So what kind of, what, what did a day look like for him? Those kind of calls. Oh, God, if the guys from 10 listen to this, they're probably going to kill me. Um, <laughs> They'll kill me first. Well, <laughs> <laughs> now, you're spot on. They know it. I mean, th- they were first due with the World Trade Center. So I would say that their regular days consisted. A lo- there's a lot of like stuck elevators, um, smoke conditions, because there's uh, lots of restaurants around. Um they were always doing BI. That's a huge building inspection. That's a huge thing. I mean, it's a huge thing everywhere. You should know the buildings that you're working in, but especially, especially in Manhattan because there's always construction. There's always something going on. So they do spend a lot of their day doing building inspection. Um, uh, but other than that, you're right. There weren't a lot of actual fires um, sometimes there would be a call down to the river who jump, you know, water rescues, things like that. Um, and to be quite honest, I, I, I hate to think that I'm like upsetting people when I say things. Uh, but when, um, Jeff was in 175, which was the house right before he went back to 10 and 10, so really busy company. It is a lot of senior guys. It's a house that everyone, you know, wants to go to. And he saw so much um, fire duty there. Like it was, whenever he would come home, he would smell like smoke. Um, And you would think that that would make me more nervous, but it actually reassured me because I felt like, um, everyone that he worked with was so experienced on the fire floor that he was in good hands. When he went back to 10, I had, he had, a um, they actually did have a smoke condition in a restaurant and I was like, Oh, how, you know, how'd it go? And he was like, yeah, you know, it was, it was easy. Nothing. There was, it was nothing major, but in my mind, I was thinking to myself, you know, if you don't see a lot of fire, then, and I'm not saying that uh, they're not capable, they're, they're all capable, but it was just like, oh my gosh, you know, I hope nothing big happens because it's sort of like you're rusty, a little rusty, even though they drill constantly and they keep their skills intact. It's different from being in a company that is constantly going to fires. So, I started to get nervous 
And I think that there's something to be said. Again, I always take things to the soul level. Like I feel like my soul knew that something was going to happen. And this wasn't just him going from a busy house to um, a less busy house. Um, when he graduated from the academy, he got interviewed by our local newspaper and uh, I was filing it away. And I just, and, and there was a picture, his, his official fire department picture that I was also putting away. And I just, and I'm not a crier. So this is like, I was, I couldn't stop crying. My sister called me and was like, what's the matter with you? And I said, I don't know. I feel like I'm filing this stuff to take it, take it out at a really bad time. And that's exactly what ended up happening. So, uh, and I, I, and I'm not a worry wart, you know, (laughs) not normally. I'm not, I don't, try to think of the worst case scenario. It just isn't my um, personality, but there was some kind of, of, of knowing even after the father's day fires, right. Um, Both of us were so shook and there had been other, you know, um, losses, but that one, for some reason, I, like, I just knew I couldn't imagine what it was like being in the, being the wives of those of the men or you know their family members and I don't know I just had a feeling that one day that was going to be me see that's such a powerful perspective to hear for a couple reasons firstly you're right there there are Many of us that are out protecting areas that don't get a lot of fire. And I, being, you said, you used the word gypsy earlier. I mean, basically, I've ended up being a fire gypsy. You know, I ended up <laughs> starting in the Miami area. Well, I trained in Orlando, worked in Miami area, Hialeah initially, then California for a few years, and then the, the Orange County outside Orlando for a few years, and then finally protecting Disney, the last one. And Anaheim, for example, burned all the time. I was a black cloud. My probationary year, I think it was like, 12 solid structure fires which you know for what was that 2005 time that was pretty good a lot of you know the buildings were safer by that point but then the last one i worked for the protects disney of course they do very well with their fire protection so you know i mean next to no fires i mean there's a tracks trailer fire and i think i'm trying to remember a couple others mutual aid but really nothing and the amount of time i was there so then the onus is on training though like you said you can't make fires happen in fact really in your soul you know you shouldn't want to make fires happen anyway (laughs) (laughs) ethically (laughs) but we're all praying for them let's be honest but um but you know the the so the other side of that is the training and you're right completely there's no question that when i was in anaheim had something kicked off, or even Orange County, the one that was after, I would have been so much more prepared than the very end of my career in the last place. Um, and partly because the training wasn't there, but you know, also the frequency. Even if you're training well, you're still simulating it's not real world. Um, so you're absolutely right to worry, <laughs> to, to be completely honest. The people that are out there, yes, the, the potential is bigger, but you know, the potential of, of not performing that one time, I think is much bigger in a quieter house. Now, so many of us around the world, you know, honor 
the men and women that were lost. There's a beautiful competition, which sadly has uh, stopped at the moment because of a combination of new leadership, which is terrible in their department and, and COVID. But um, it was honoring the 343. And obviously, stair climbs are a huge part of that. Um, when, you know, prior to that event, um, how often did did the crews climb? Because one of the, the most... Pa- I think powerful things I've heard, one of the leaders in the fire service, and he was from Denver, say, uh, Dave McGrail, um, you know, I asked him, and it was a loaded question, you know, how how many stairs, how many flights of stairs do you think a firefighter should be able to carry, you know, all the gear? And he said, well, to the top of your tallest building in your first year. So um, with that, obviously, the World Trade was a huge structure. I ended up climbing one World Trade with a Marine, Rob Jones, who's a double amputee. So I climbed, he bear crawled. 110 floors, whatever wow. it was, which is insane. Wow. Um, but anyway, the point I'm trying to make is how much training and, and, and what was the emphasis on stair climbs for the crews that Jeff worked with? Um, oh my God, I'm throwing everybody under the bus here. Don't ask me these questions. Uh, I think that it's actually left after you get out of the academy, there are physical, you know, you go for your, your, your physicals, your medicals every year with your uh, company and all of that. But there isn't actually another uh, physical fitness test, if you could believe that, but that's the truth. So the ability to climb stairs it's left up to the individual. Uh, pretty much, I I don't I've never been in a firehouse that doesn't have its own gym. Ten House has a beautiful gym. The guys are always you know working out and um, but it really was up to the individual to stay to stay fit. Yeah, but I mean, did, and that's I think that's the, there's an element of that that's good. I think that we should have annual standards, and that's something I'm huge about. But you know, it is on us. So, but were they were they out climbing stairs? And the reason I ask is not to kind of throw them under the bus, but a lot of crews got you know an, an, an astounding way up that building with these fire conditions, with these evacuations going on. So I'm doing it out of you know respect for a lot of these crews, and I'm assuming that there were many crews that were holding their own bar high to be able to actually affect the rescues they did that day. I mean, I think that when you work in Manhattan, every every single building basically is a high rise, right? So you're always going upstairs. I know they would take the elevator when they could because why wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> and um, in regards to September 11th, the person that I heard of getting the highest, and again, we don't know, right? It's all pretty much... Uh, hearsay and um the little bit of of radio comms that we had that it's based upon but uh was an individual called uh oreo palmer and he was known for his fitness (laughs) so no one was surprised that uh he got as far as as far as he did yeah and that was was that the 89th? Have I got that right? Around there, that he got to. I don't even. I don't remember actually how high, but I, I thought that it was in the 80s. Yeah. yeah, and I'm assuming that probably was where the impact was, so they probably couldn't get any further. But yeah, I mean, because so, so like I said, this conversation obviously it's a powerful perspective over 
ownership over preparation over training if you are in a quiet house mm-hmm. but you know like i said a nod to the incredible physical achievements that that, that i heard of and i witnessed in you know the do- documentary 911 and things like this that you know when called upon you know a lot of those men and women got to an incredible level and facilitated so many rescues before you know the collapse yeah, I, I actually, um, you know, it's interesting, even 20 years later, I'll sit down with somebody and we'll be, you know, telling stories and something will come up and I'll find out something that I never knew in all this time. You know, I'm like, wow, that that I never heard that story before. But um, I know that our guys, I'm pretty sure they got on an elevator even though they were way up, um, I think that they, from, from what I've heard, they didn't, they didn't start down from the lobby. They hopped on one of the elevators and, uh, then made their way up. It didn't go, I don't remember what floor they got off of, but I think they were up in the fifties. Right. Well, let's talk about that then. So, um, you know, obviously nine eleven was a beautiful morning as we've heard. So, what was that day like through your eyes? Through my eyes. So uh, the day before, Jeff left for work the day before, New York City Fire Department. For those who don't know, the firemen work 24-hour shifts most of the time. So they go in for 24 hours and then they're off for a day or two. Um, and they have a 24-partner. So that person works opposite their schedule. Um, Jeff was not supposed to be working the morning of the, uh, 11th. He was supposed to be coming home, but the night before he had gotten a call, someone, uh, had jury duty. And so they needed, you know, they needed one of the guys to stay over. So Jeff was, uh, he offered to stay. And I spoke to him the night before, um, in the morning I had my, my oldest had to get off to school and I had had a miscarriage that summer, like, uh, and had complications. So I wasn't really feeling great, but the, the two little ones, um, after I sent the older guy off, uh, the two little ones slept in and I never would go back to sleep normally, but I wasn't feeling great. So I was like, let me lay down while they're still laying down. And we didn't, we had cell phones at the time, but they weren't the uh, first line of communication. So my home phone was ringing off the hook and every morning I would talk to my sister, my sister-in-law. So I figured it was them. And then I heard, my father on my voicemail and I picked up because he never would call me. <laughs> so I was like, something must be wrong. So, um, yeah, I answered the phone and he said, where's Jeff? And I said, he's at work. And my father was working at, uh, uh, Jersey city medical center at the time. And his office, big gigantic windows faced the world trade center. And he saw the first plane hit and uh, knew that, you know, that was Jeff's area. So he said, well, a plane just hit the uh, Twin Towers. Said there's a huge fire. And 
I was not concerned. I honestly was excited for him. I was because, you know, he lives for fire. So I was like, oh, good. He's finally going to, you know, he's going to get a good job. And then um, while I was on the phone, uh, my father said, holy shit, there's another plane coming. And when that happened, we knew that it was not just an accident. So I put my TV on um, and I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I think everyone sort of was in that state of what is happening, right? There, it was just, um, I, I didn't expect the towers to fall. And I didn't, even at that point, I was scared because I just the fear of the unknown, but I didn't think that Jeff would be hurt. Um, I just was like, what the hell is going on? And then as we heard about the other planes, it was, we knew that we were under attack. And I, I, my first thought was for my children's safety. I had Vincent at school and, um, I, <laughs> I mean, this is, I, you know, the dark humor. It's not funny, but it, it is now. Um, I didn't know, like, should I go pick him up? I, I wanted to, I was waiting to hear from Jeff. I did. And then I'm like, well, schools are a bomb shelter. So maybe there he's better off staying there. And I said, my sister also, her boys were at school. So I said, what do you think we should do? So we left them there. And then, uh, a relative of ours who's a police officer said we should probably go pick the kids up from school because they didn't know, you know, if we were going to pack up and what, what was going to happen. So we go to get the kids from school, but my son to this day tells everybody that he's the last person in school that I just left him. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, I thought I was keeping you safe, but, um, yeah. So, so that was like my first thought trying to, get the kids situated. But when the first tower collapsed, my heart, I I didn't, it was like, even when that happened, your brain does this, your brain goes into this protection mode instantly. When I speak now of, um, you know, my memories and I don't, can't remember there is, there's so much, and this is common with trauma too. There's so much that I don't remember. I have little snapshots. Um, and there's kind of like, you know, a story attached to those visuals, but, uh, there's a lot that I can't recall. Um, when that tower fell, my first thought was, Oh God, you know, he might be hurt. He might be hurt. That was, I didn't even think that he would have been killed. Like I couldn't, it didn't, it did, it couldn't register. It wasn't, you know, like it just, so I, I started saying, Oh God, I hope he's okay. Like, I hope he, he, he isn't hurt. Um, and that was like my first prayer was let him just be okay. You know, don't let him be hurt. Um, 
And then I thought to myself, I remembered Jeff saying to me, it was like all of these conversations we had came rushing back to me. So I re- remembered him saying to me, if anything ever happens to me, they send someone um, to the house to pick you up and they'll bring you to me. So um, I was like, I better get in the shower. <laughs> I know this sounds like so crazy, but it's like the way that your mind just goes into this insane delusional thinking. I was like, let me get into the shower in case they come to get me. If he does get hurt, they might have to bring me to the hospital. While I was in the shower, um, had the, our house was very small. We lived in a little Cape on Staten Island. Um, I had the bathroom door open and the TV was on so that I could hear what was happening. And as I was in the shower, the, um, second tower fell. And as the tower fell, this is the God's honest truth. I was wearing a locket that Jeff had given me and it literally got it. Like it felt like someone grabbed it and ripped it off of my neck. Like it just got, it got yanked and it fell to the bottom of the shower. Right. And I got this feeling of like somebody like somebody falling. So um, then that was when I started to get scared. Like I didn't know what I was supposed to do, where I was. And so my phone then started ringing off the hook. Everybody wanted to know where he was. Um, And I, uh, I picked, like I picked the necklace up. It wasn't broken. Like people are like, Oh, it must've broke. It wasn't broken. It just, it was the most insane thing. Um, so my, uh, sister came over and my mother came over and we just, there was nothing I could do after that. Right. I just waited. I kept calling the firehouse. Um, there was no, there was no answer or it was a busy signal. We had no idea what was going on. It was like everybody, you were, you were scared. I was scared for him, but I was also scared for all of us. Like I didn't, I had children to protect. I was by myself. Um, so I started, our house went in a circle and I literally was just like pacing. I just went around. I just kept pacing and looking on the news, like spent hours watching the news, looking for the little names on the back of the bunker gear to see if I could see them. And, uh, then, um, I don't like that's That's pretty much all I remember from, from the first, from the first, that first day, I remember just thinking to myself, okay, I don't care how he comes home. First, it was like, I wanted him home in one piece. Then it was like, I don't care how he comes home. Um, I just want him home. I don't care if, you know every limb is broken. I I just want him home. Um, and I didn't hear from anyone, but you know, we didn't hear from anyone for a date. It it was, you know, it was, uh, just this waiting. And if you were, I mean, I'm sure you remember watching the news and the scariest thing, I mean, especially for me being, a nurse that spent a lot of time in the emergency room. I saw all the triage and everything set up, all the city, the big city hospitals ready for all of these people to be brought in. And no one 
was being brought in, I was like, where? Like, it was like as if all these people just disappeared. It was, uh, yeah, that was my September 11th. Well, that, that last comment that you made reminds me of the Surfside incident we just had in Miami. A lot of my friends were down there, you know, with the USAR teams. And it was the same thing. They had a few people pulled out at the beginning and then, mm-hmm. and then nothing. I mean, they were trying to do body recovery and, you know, we won't get into the details, but they weren't right. finding much of anything. So, well, this is going to be an unusual perspective for you because, I mean, you know, you were worried about actually losing someone, but one of the, the beautiful things that came out of this horrendous day was what the world saw the day after the community, the coming together. And it's something that I think that people even romanticized about this last year. I miss nine twelve was definitely a, a phrase said a lot. Now it's a skewed perspective because you were obviously, you know, fearing that, that you lost Jeff, but were there any elements of that now retroactively when now you're, you know, much further away from that day that you remember of the kindness and compassion post nine eleven. I um, I my own nine twelve story. I I mean, I stayed up that whole night. You know, the of the eleventh, I was up all night, and uh, in the morning, I was sitting outside. It was pitch black. The kids were sleeping, and. Um, I'm writing a book and this is like the, the, one of the first parts of it is, um, that the sun started to rise and I couldn't believe it. I was like it because you feel like time was standing still. Right. And the night was so long. It was just, it was, it felt like it would never end. And then all of a sudden the sun came up and I was like, wow, the world just keeps on keeping on no matter what happens, right? But it also gave me relief. Like it didn't feel so scary. I felt like if he was trapped in there, maybe it wasn't so scary with the sunlight. And um, it was, I guess it was like my first sign of, of hope. Um, and then as far as people go, God, I talk about this often because um, I, when when you're in a situation like that, it is as if you're so broken open. Every single one of your you you you're experiencing every single emotion on full blast, right? There's so much pain. There's so much fear. There's so much sadness, and then people are so kind and they're so good to you. I, my house was filled with firemen filled. They made sure I had breakfast, lunch, dinner. They paid my bills. They did my food shopping. They made sure that my kids were taken care of. I mean, I, all I had to do was exist. Right. And that was pretty much all I was capable of at the time. But, um, on top of that, of course, my friends, my family, neighbors, um, everyone, everyone sent food over, um, put up as because the other part of 9-11 is that that feeling of that not knowing. And it lasted for months because they were, you know, they were looking for people for months. So it wasn't like a regular fire where, you know, you lose someone and you can start 
you know, sort of, you know, the closure comes quickly. You have a body and you have a, a funeral and all of that. We were just sitting around waiting and waiting. So yes, I, the people that were, that were in my immediate, um, you know, my home, in my home with my immediate family, all of that. But then also seeing on TV, you know, everybody donating, uh, material and the heavy machinery to start, you know, just the guys out there doing the bucket brigade in the beginning. Uh, it was, it was really people taking care of the firemen. I mean, friends of mine, people, guys that Jeff worked with, I would see pictures of them on the news covered in dust, getting water poured in their eyes. And yeah. So it was like that, uh, was the worst of time what does that say it's the worst of times and it was the, the best of times and the worst of times well it's again it's so important to hear because that's who i believe people are you know and i think that we're, we're given this skewed perspective but again because i get to hear all, all these incredible stories i get these layers now you know i've had 9-11 for example everywhere from the french brothers that were inside you know with chief pfeiffer and father judge and then you know one of the, the men assigned the coast guard that was doing the evacuations off manhattan i mean just so many powerful stories but one thing i don't think people realize is the the surviving members of fdny that were you know not hurt and able to carry on were cycling through between you know funerals covering overtime shifts because you know the, the life goes on people are still getting sick and hurt and things are burning you know outside of manhattan but then also being present that house full of firefighters that were helping you were also going to the pile going to funerals running their shifts so the surviving members of that department and what they did you know obviously fdpd everyone else that was kind of involved in that dispatch um you know it's I think that's another lesser known fact that, that the workload emotionally and physically that was put on the shoulders of survivors is something that you don't really hear much about. And I think it needs to be acknowledged. Oh my God. I just, on I, I don't, on my personal Instagram page, I just did a post about this because we had a, uh, we had a retirement party for two of the uh, members of 10 house and uh, one of my liaisons I see often, he actually joined the army after 9-11. He became a nurse and then he went into the army and he has since deployed. And so I see, I see his name is John Moore. I see him often. Um, but the other liaison who was Jeff's senior man, he has since retired and I, he doesn't really come out that often. He has his own, um, issues and uh I love him to death but I got to see him and that was my first thought being now you know time having passed and everything just being so grateful for I, I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they did it. I mean sometimes there were there were three and four funerals a day and they, they were, we lost so many guys in, you know, in the towers that there wasn't room for, uh, not going to work <laughs> and they just made time. I don't know how they made time for all of us. I don't, I, I don't know how, I don't know how they did it. And, and not only 
I mean, they, they were displaced. The guys from Tenant House were, were, their firehouse was blown out. So they were having to operate out of two other firehouses. And uh, it was just, and then the jobs that they had to do when they, uh, gathering, you know, it was just, it was re- gathering body parts. Like literally that was, that was their detail for a while. I mean, I, I don't know how any of them um, did it. No, and I think again, it needs to be acknowledged. Even one of my my close friends was at Surfside, and you know, some of them were doing the same thing. You know, finding you know, fingers and toes, and God knows what else was left. Um, but another one of my friends who um, has again, you talk about trauma. His his life story is is full of trauma, and even his wife right now is battling cancer. And you know, the, those two are amazing human beings. But he was assigned death notifications when they did finally, you know, identify someone that deceased. So you think about the emotional toll of that, and I'm sure a lot of the members of FD had to do that as well. So you're just com- you know combining all these traumas now. Then you factor in. The exposures, you know, the, the 9-11 cancer carcinogens that everyone was breathing in and around. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's a group of people that, that we should be bending over backwards to take care of the rest of their lives. And, uh, sadly, it appears that that's not always the case. Well, they did get that, um, bill passed, which, which was really good news, but I, um, the number of firemen that we have lost to 9-11 related cancer or or not even just the number that I've lost, but the number of firemen diagnosed with some form of 9-11 related cancer is the, the numbers are, are, I don't know them um, offhand, but they're staggering. Um, Jeff's captain at the time, uh, Gene Kelty, He's, he, uh, had pancreatic cancer. Thankfully he is, uh, on the men's, but I have like good friends of mine. My, my, uh, best friend from high school, she married her high school sweetheart. So we've all been friends from high school, but he had kidney cancer. Um, other friends of mine, I mean, it's what's disturbing about it was the untruths that were told around the time, right? We were, they were told that the uh, air quality was fine when in fact it was not. Um, so it was just exposure to jet fuel, pulverized concrete, you know, all of that. Yeah. Well, I think that's just it. We need to acknowledge all all of the the ripple effects. And we're going to get into obviously the, the numbers in, in a little bit. But before we move forward with that... Um, you're there, nine twelve. The sun's coming up. You know your your children are probably wondering where their dad is. Walk me through those next few days, and then and then when did you finally learn that Jeff was one of the people that didn't make it? Um, I don't. I can't even put a timeline to certain things. Like I don't know. Uh, the next few days basically consisted of me dialing the phone over and over and over again, trying to get through to the firehouse and not being able to, um, and then reaching out to other, um, women in the firehouse to see if they had heard from their husbands. Uh, I called Jeff's 24 partners wife thinking that he would have not been there because Jeff was working, but he had in fact gone in and, um, had been detailed to another firehouse. 
So she hadn't heard from him. Um, so that was one of the guys that we lost in 10 wasn't even operating with 10 that day. I don't remember what company he was, he was with, but, um, so yeah, it was the days after that were just waiting, waiting and hoping and praying. And I would have guys come and say, uh, there were voids and there was a good possibility that, um, they were trapped in these voids. There would be enough air for them to survive. And, uh, I always, I, I tell the story often because it's one of those snapshots that I told you about. Um, one of Jeff's senior guys came in and I was like, I, I said, Hey Eddie, um, you know, how are things going over there? You think you finding anybody in the voids? And he just looked at me, he had tears in his eyes and he just shook his head. And I got so angry at him. Like, what's the matter with you? You, you know, I didn't say this to him. I was just like, everybody else has all of this hope and you're so negative. You know, like that was my, my idea of, uh, just aren't you looking, don't you want to find them? You know? And, uh, my birthday is September 25th. So I, uh, wanted to go up like around that time they had been asking me if I wanted to go to the site and I kept saying no 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 and then I finally decided to go right around my birthday and uh when I got there what I had seen on tv did not I I don't want to say didn't do it justice because that sounds like but it was so that that pile that didn't it I mean it looked big on TV but when you were actually standing in front of it I mean it was gigantic gigantic it was stories high and um blocks wide and I looked at it and I was like how are they ever supposed to find anybody in that it's like finding a needle in a haystack how could they ever find anyone in that so um, I went home and I, um, <laughs> I said to Jeff, Jeff and I used to have these like crazy conversations when he was alive, but I was sitting outside and I said to him, I need for you to give me a sign. Like I need for you to let me know that you're okay. Um, if you're like, when I was there, I was like, there's no way he's alive you know, there was no doubt in my mind. Um, so Jeff and I used to go up to Pennsylvania a lot and we would have the kids in the car and we would on the way up there count red tail talks because there really weren't any of those on Staten Island at all. Um, but we would see them on the way up there. So I was like, if you, um, you know, like if you're not here anymore, I want you to send me a hawk. This is like my internal conversation. Um, not, uh, I don't remember how long after that. It wasn't long, like within the week. I had to go to uh, fill out some paperwork and bring some DNA from my kids' mouths so that if they, if he was recovered, they could identify him. Um, write down all, it was just a terrible day. So I came back and I go into my backyard. 
all of these firemen are standing around and they're all like looking up at the sky. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? They were like, this, this bird's been flying over your house for hours. And I look up and it's the red tail talk. So um, that was like confirmation for me, even though it sounds crazy. I was like, okay, he's, he's okay. You know, um, there, there was like a difference between my heart, like what I knew in my soul and what my head would say. There was like this incongruence that I can't fully explain, but, um, 40 days, exactly 40 days after 9-11, um, Jeff was recovered. He was recovered. And, uh, you know, the 40 days is significant if you're Catholic, because that was the time that Jesus spent in the desert, right? 40 days. Um, so that was when I got the official notification, which was, I want to say about three weeks after I, uh, had the feeling that he wasn't there. Um, but after I went to the site, I knew that I had to give my children some closure and I uh, decided at that point that I was going to have a memorial for him, whether they recovered him or not, because I didn't really believe that they would be able to recover him. So um, we had an entire funeral. We had a casket that we just filled up with everything that he loved, his fishing poles and, you know, the kids put drawings in there, his backpack that he carried around with him everywhere, his class A's. We put it all in there. And um, after we did that, then they recovered him. See, I mean, there's so many areas that are just heart-wrenching, like imagining swabbing your child's mouth to send it to see if your husband can be identified. I mean, these are the... These are the, the depths of these stories. A single firefighter, one firefighter of the thousands of people that perish just that day yeah. alone. Um, you know, it's so easy to minimize each of these stories through statistics. Oh, we lost X amount. I mean, even this year, it's been all about statistics, you know, right. but, but one single life, um, you know, I mean, this is, this is the depth that we need to hear it, you know, as, as civilians that, that survive this as, as people that are voting to send our men and women off to war or not send them, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, these are the things that we need to hear. Now you talked about Catholicism. I've had people on here who are, are deeply specifically religious and lent on that faith. I myself am more spiritual generally and take, you know, lean more into the principles of love, kindness and compassion than any specific doctrine. Mm -hmm. What, emotionally or spiritually did you lean into you know whilst grieving you know post 9-11 I um had been exploring listen I am after this whole entire experience and the 20 years since I really have um developed I, I was always I mean like I said grew up Catholic there was there was there was always an underlying um, devotion for me. I've, I've always felt very connected to something bigger than myself. I didn't actually uh, 
subscribe even when I was younger to the to the uh, the dogma, the doctrine, all of that with the Catholic, with the Catholic religion, there was so much to it that I was like, wait, that doesn't make sense. You said here to do this and here to do that. And it just seems like, you know, there's so much, um, hypocritical stuff happening there. I, it didn't align for me. Uh, and I would question it constantly and get in trouble in school constantly. Um, so honestly, when I met Jeff, like I said, he was really into Native American, very earth-based belief system. And I started meditating and somehow it was just like this uh, organic switch to, I don't feel, um, it was a a switch from a fear-based belief system right? Catholicism is, oh, if you don't follow these rules, you're going to go to hell to a love-based belief system where men are inherently good and uh, men and women, I should say, you know what I mean, but, um, and that it was all, this is like all part of the process. I am not even kidding you. So I started out with, Oh God, I better go to church. You know, like I, when I say I pray, I prayed with my whole heart. But when I went to church and my son, my, the son that was in school, my, my oldest was in Catholic school. They did nothing for us. I don't mean nothing in the sense of, you know, they, didn't he didn't have to pay tuition and all that but as far as the emotional support and not that they didn't offer it it just didn't work for us um it was you know if he was upset over it and he went to the office the principal would say to him very lovingly and very kindly you know she would let him come in whenever he needed to but she would say to him well you just have to have faith and pray on it you know an eight-year-old's boy doesn't want to hear that so um I just did what came naturally to me, which was sit and find quiet and pray and um, hold on to what I knew to be true. And I know that it sounds like supernatural woohoo kind of stuff, but I really looked for the signs. I asked him for signs. I looked for the signs. And when I got them, I believed in them. And that literally was what pulled me through because there were so many of them that we could do an entire episode just on that, um, that were undeniable. People would be like, are you making that up? Like you, I, I mean, yeah. So, so that's, and, and since then, it's sort of one of those things where you believe something and then it's confirmed. So it strengthens your belief. And, uh, as, as I've continued on this journey, I have learned that, um, yeah, I 100% believe in, uh, an energy that uh, is way bigger than me, um, with whatever you want to call it, I don't care. Uh, and there's certainly a collective consciousness, right? Like an energy that comes just from, uh, 
everyone's everyone's thoughts, feelings, and experiences and sort of hovers above and infuses all of us. Yeah. Well, I think this is so important here and is, is a very positive reason why you know, I wanted to, to see if that was what your experience was. I got a slight hint of it from that podcast I listened to before. Mm-hmm. But I've had people on here and specifically the Christian church, you know, the, the, the Muslim faith, you know, whatever, whatever they found themselves in, that worked for them. And, and the, you said the word belief. So, but what I want to put out there is that there's also people where it didn't work for. One of my good friends went to, um, uh, oh my God, the chaplain. Such, I always, that word always falls out of my head. Yeah, yeah, so the yeah. local chaplain and he was going through his own mental health struggles and being told God has a plan, have faith, all this, it just didn't resonate with them. So I think it's important for people to hear that even if you were raised in a certain doctrine, if that doesn't work, it doesn't mean that therefore you are doomed. It may be, you know, molding the clay a little bit and creating your own personal version of your faith, I think is, is very important. And I find that that's what, what's, you know, sad. We're talking about an event that was supposedly because of religious differences, which I disagree. I think it was about money, power and greed fundamentally, if you look at it. But, um, you know, when we start focusing on minutia is when there's those conflicts. Fundamentally, I think all, you know, all the, the accepted religious doctrines agree with each other. Be kind, be compassionate, be generous, you know, take care of each other. Don't murder, rape, pillage, you know, I mean, they're, they're pretty fundamental things through all of them. So, you know, I think that therefore there is, you know, like you said, God, higher energy, universe, whatever. We, even the agnostic, atheist, whatever, tend to still believe in the same thing. They just, again, term it differently. But yeah, that we're, we're definitely part of something much bigger. And I think that we all are related. And there was energy when we were alive. Why wouldn't there be energy when we, you know, move, transition to whatever form it is? And my wife lost her boyfriend before me to suicide. I have witnessed with my own eyes Danny sending Becky messages through battery-powered bookshelf lights that had no reason to be blinking on and off to things sounding like they fell off a table and there's nothing around to fall off or to even make that sound. I mean, just so, yeah, I mean, I I agree. Whether you call it a miracle, whether it's Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad or whoever, I think that that's just it. We, we, don't, we don't need to stay in little boxes. You put yourself in whatever box you want to make for yourself, but that's your own personal box and you should be allowed to define it however you want as long as you're not forcing it on someone else. I want to I want to address two things that you said in that um one being how most religions are all saying the same thing right it's sort of it's sort of I mean I in my opinion religions were were created to sort of give a a value structure to societies right so um they all do have similar messages. I, I started studying different religions after this because uh, I was just interested. I didn't know a lot about Islam and I wanted to be more because I was like, how could a religion be so hateful? And after 9-11, um, I don't remember who said this, but there was a, it was a chaplain, (laughs) there was another chaplain who was speaking on, um, 
the whole, like you said, you know, religious differences and, and the point that he made, oh my God, it stuck with me. He said, for every religion, right, there's, oh, when there's, there's, once they start to become radical, right, there, there's an, there's a power struggle and, and the inherent evil that comes with that. And you find that in every single religion. It's not just, um, Islam, like we had David Korash, Catholics had David Korash, right? He took the Bible and turns it into a means of manipulating people for his own, his own, um, use. And that was, so, uh, was that Waco? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, every religion, there's, there's always people who take these, uh, belief systems that are based on love and kindness and uh, turn them into something that is um, just evil. Self-serving. Self And self-serving, yeah. Which is the opposite of love, compassion, and kindness. Right. <laughs> so there's a huge irony there. They take something that originally was, was intended to do good in the world and they make it to do bad in the world. Yeah. Yep. So with with that, then you you know you're you're finding your own spiritual path. At what point did you come across yoga and realize that that was again, as we talked about earlier, the healing um, physical side to add to the emotional growth? Well, honestly, when I first went to yoga, it wasn't even like for any kind of spiritual reason. <laughs> I was still in the midst of the shit show, as I like to call it, because. Uh, I was very busy. I knew instantly, I knew that I had, like, I felt myself fall apart. Um, and my biggest fear was I wasn't going to be able to, uh, well, not that I wasn't going to be able to take care of my kids. I wasn't so concerned about that. What I was concerned about was how do I tell them and re and in the, in the in a way where I don't destroy their belief in humanity, and where this one event, as as devastating as it was, doesn't become devastating in terms of the rest of their lives. Right? How do I raise children that still finds good? in the world. And so I went to therapy like instantly because I was like, I don't know where the frig do I start with that? Let me go talk to somebody. Right. So, and I wanted to know, like, I didn't, I didn't know how my reaction anyway. So I started with therapy in, in October, like right after. And, um, I was going to therapy. I was working out because I, I would have not liked to work out. I would have rather lay in my bed every day um, and disappear, but I couldn't do that. My sister would drag me to the gym and I knew that movement made me feel better. So I didn't know anything about any of this, any of the real, you know, um, science behind it or anything. I just knew that, okay, when I move, I feel better. Um, and the whole thing with the spirituality, like go to church, didn't work. And what, ha what, what I found was at one moment, I would feel like mentally strong and maybe my body didn't feel great or uh, my body felt great, but I was falling apart in my head. And, you know, I couldn't find something to pull it all together. I had moved to Jersey. I was working out like a maniac 
at this point because, you know, your body can only experience one pain at a time. So, uh, I was doing that and I got so stiff. I was like, I better, I got to stretch or something. Like I'm always sore. So I saw a yoga studio. I was like, oh, I didn't really know anything about yoga. I said, let me just hop in here and see how it goes. And I had no idea that it was a hot yoga studio. It, Bikram in particular, if you don't know what that is, it's 105 degrees, 26 poses. People were half naked. I was like in sweatpants ready for a workout. I thought I was going to die. And I was like, what am I doing in here? At the end of the class, you know, the final pose in yoga is called Shavasana. And it's corpse pose. Like you lay there and you just integrate all the, you know, newly oxygenated blood. You let everything settle and all of that. And I found myself like tears were just pouring. And I'm like, oh, my God, thank God. It's so freaking sweaty in here because I, why am I crying? I'm crying. Like, so um, I left. And when I left, I had this lightness. I felt happy for no reason. And that was, I wouldn't say it was the first time, um, but it was so noticeable to me that I was kind of like, am I happy because of this yoga class? Or is it just because two years now has gone by? Like, is time healing my wounds? I just feel happy. Like, I felt like myself for a split second. And um, I didn't know if it was the yoga or not, but I decided to go back. And then I realized after going, I'm like, wow, this feels different. And um I stopped working out and I just started doing yoga every day. And that was when, that was when my healing was not only put on fast forward, but it was grief was given a name. And it was also, I just gained so much clarity around the way my body was feeling, the way my, um, the sadness that I felt, how it was connected to other experiences in my life. Like it sort of just brought it all together. And I thought I found like the Holy grail. Everybody at that point, I was like, everybody needs to do yoga. This is like, this is the key to happiness and everyone in the world should be doing it. And I acted like that for a long time. Like I wanted everybody to do yoga. So what, what did you witness then? I mean, like you said, you're two years gone now. You know, how how much did that magnify the healing? Of course, it's not forgetting. It's not getting over. I mean, you're going to have that void, you know, in your heart for the rest of your life. But what what did you see shift when you really started practicing regularly? Energetically, I know this now so I can put words to it. I probably wouldn't have been able to back then, but energetically every emotion has a vibration right and grief is one of those and and trauma are very um low vibrating emotions as you would suspect and we have the ability to raise that love love is the highest vibrating emotion um and these can be measured you know so there, there is science behind it. Uh, I think the movement, the specific movements in yoga, um, 
yoga works on a cellular level. It's not just stretching your muscles. And so just being in, being, um, being more in tuned with my body, tapping deep, you know, into my intuition and recognizing it as that being able to see the full circle of life and um, also I want to think of the right words to say this. Um, There's a level when you, you know, being able to be in a group of people that work on a soul level was, was eye opening for me because most people don't, speak in those terms, even if they do work, you know, even if that's their belief system, they don't talk about it all the time because you, people think it's, you know, like it's so crazy. But um, I realized the role that Jeff played in my life and uh, how every single experience up to meeting him served a purpose, how I was well-equipped to handle everything that was given to me and that what I put my attention on is that was probably the biggest thing. What I put my attention on is what I would see. So if I held myself in a state of gratitude daily, I would see positivity throughout the day. If I woke up and I was like, Oh my God, another day, like, you know, that was how I would feel all day. So I learned that I could change my own vibration by moving my body, um, music, what I put into my body as far as nutrition, um, my belief system, meditating, all of that. It just, it just changed, I, I guess, not just my mindset, but my whole being. Beautiful. Well, one more thing, you know, about healing and then we'll, we'll move forward because I want to hear how you found OEW. Um, that was your journey. You had, you know, young children who'd lost their father. How were you able to, to again, stop that cycle of trauma? I mean, of course, the trauma was there, but how were you able to kind of apply your healing philosophy to your children and, and try and minimize the damage that losing their father had done to them? All right. So this was something that I (laughs) wasn't sure if I was actually doing right. You know, it was kind of like I was just winging it because I was, you know, I didn't really know anyone that had ever been in my position before. So young with three kids that lost their husband. So I really was just, but my therapist said something to me that stuck with me. And I just prayed that she was right. She said that I set the tone. I set the tone by how um, how I handle my griefs will model for them how they should handle their grief. Um, so she said to me, I like I said, I wasn't a crier. She said that uh, always be open, always be honest. Don't hide your feelings, even if you feel like they're upsetting to them, you can always say to them, you know, it's okay to cry when you get sad. Sometimes you cry. And, um, this way they were able to feel comfortable with whatever came up for them. Uh, my older guy went to therapy. Um, he went for a little bit. It 
you know, at that age, he really, they did some play therapy. Um, Some things came up, but the therapist basically said to me, you'll revisit this again when he's in his teens, which we did. Um, And then I think one of the most important, we, we talk about Jeff to this day regularly. And it was about experiences. My life with them became about experiences, like showing them that the world was, the world was good, that they were safe. Um, and we just did, I mean, you know, I, I tried to expose them to as many things as I could so they could find what made them feel, feel good. So a lot of snowboarding, traveling, skiing. Um, I don't know. We're always kayaking, biking. You know, we're always we were always doing something. And uh, what I found for each of them is when they went away to college, that first year in college, being away from home, not being in a familiar environment, not uh, having the same routine. They all. I mean, I think every freshman struggles, but they in particular had uh, had some revisiting to do. A lot of questions would come for all three of them. They started asking me a lot of questions around 9-11. How did it, you know, where exactly was daddy? What was the story? Is there anybody here? I had one of the firemen actually talk to my oldest son. He wanted to know, like, what happened that day? So one of the firemen that was there was kind enough to sit with him and tell him everything he remembered. And um, that's how he did it. So I wasn't sure if what I was doing was right. Like I would always offer for them to go to therapy if they needed it or whatever. Um, But now that they're adults, I can say that uh, I did something right. I don't know because... (laughs) They're all amazing. They're all well-adjusted, healthy, happy. Um, You know, my oldest is married. He just had a baby. So I'm a grandma and uh, he's doing great. And my daughter's getting her graduate degree. My youngest is uh, just finishing up at University of Tampa. And uh, yeah, they're all happy, healthy kids. Beautiful. Well, it's interesting hearing... You know, your oldest wanting to to hear from a firefighter. I had uh, Debbie Leon, who is a Gold Star mother. Her son, Martley, who actually was killed today. This is the anniversary of his death. Um, uh, he was the first SEAL that was killed in Iraq. And, you know, one of the healing things for her was just having other SEALs tell her stories. And, you know, there's always unique perspectives and, uh, you know, that, that just paint a picture. You know, I think a lot of these people just want to know, you know, even if it was bad, they just want to know. They want, the, it adds layers. It adds color to that tapestry that was their, their experience of their son or mother or father or, you know, whatever it was. So that's a powerful perspective to hear from you as well. I think there's also something to be said for, I know, um, with, uh, operate with special forces in particular i've done some work with uh you know the gold star gold star widows um the similarity between between 
losing your husband when he is in special forces and to 9-11, I didn't even realize that until, you know, I started working with them. But there's there's something to be said for not knowing where someone is, right? A lot of times they have no idea where their husbands are. Everything is, you know, it's it's kept, it's national security. So they're not allowed to know where they are. Um, often that they, they don't, I know uh, some of the widows that I worked with didn't get any, you know, they never got to see their husband again. There was no, it was just like me with Jeff. I never got to see him again, even though we got his remains back. It was literally remains, you know, you don't get to see a face and it's very hard to come to terms with losing someone when you don't actually see them not alive. So, for kids, I would imagine that that would be magnified. And those stories mean everything. It helps you put the pieces together because there's like a gaping hole. You don't know. I don't really know what happened to Jeff. I know he went in there. I know the towers fell. I have heard stories of what happened while he was in there, but I don't really know because no one that was with him is alive to tell me. And it's often it's the same thing in the military. They don't actually know what happened. Oh, it's such a powerful you know, perspective and such a tragic perspective. And even it's, it's, it's kind of reminded me of something that I just learned recently. I had some, um, a group of firefighter wives on the show and they range from their partners were, um, your volunteers all the way through to career. And it's kind of an element of that too. The career men and women go off and we're, we're at a station. So, as you said, special operations is a negative side. There was actually a positive side because they also didn't know where they were going. They didn't hear us get toned out to some god-awful fire. Right, you know? So right, we just left. Right. But their volunteer families, they hear the pager. They hear the radio report, whatever oh, it is. And they know daddy's- interesting. Yeah, so daddy's going off to some horrendous fire or some mass shooting or whatever. That- you know, immediately alarms the entire family before they even right. walk through the door. So that actually magnifies in a way the trauma for that particular thing. So yes, mm. they saw a moments prior, but they don't know if they're going to see him again versus I packed my bag at, you know, 5 a.m. for 14 years, walked out the door and really my family just assumed I'd walk back 24 hours later, you know. So mm -hmm. it is, it's a very interesting hearing all these different views and, and how they factor in either positively or negatively. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, um, even as you're, as you're going, as you're going through it, some of these things, they don't, you don't, um, I, I would, I would stay up nights. I mean, I was in this cycle immediately after September 11th where I couldn't sleep. Right. So I would be up like two, three days in a row almost, and then just pass out from exhaustion it was, it was crazy, but I would, I would um, be on the computer looking for anything, anything, just to try to create a story around what happened to him. So um, when people share with you different experiences, it's it's almost like um, you're you're so hungry for it that you don't you don't you don't even understand the importance of it until you look back on it if that does that make any sense i don't know if i'm no, does, getting yeah. across what i'm trying to say but when i look back on it now and i think of conversations that i had with different 
with different firemen, different family members, different, uh, you know, civilians that were in the area, everybody's, I, at the time I could only, I could only take in what was happening in my world. Now I can see the bigger picture and appreciate everyone else's perspectives. I didn't have that capacity. Um, so I could hear what they were saying as it affected me, but I, I didn't see the bigger, you know, like I couldn't even see the bigger picture. Absolutely. Well, I know we had kind of touched on this before we start recording. Um, I want to make sure we get to it before we transition to rucking what you're doing now and then some closing questions if you've got time. Yeah. Um, so when September 11th happened, I was in Japan. And it was a strange thing. There was a time difference. It was actually night, nighttime in Japan. My son's mother and I um, had been out for a meal. We came back and this big apartment building that was basically half Australian, half American, and a few of us uh, Europeans thrown in there. Um, yeah, normally it's everyone's in their room. Well, there's this communal TV room downstairs and the whole building is in front of the TV. And we're like, what the hell's going on? And they told us, oh, a plane's hit a tower in New York and we're like, oh no, you know, that's, that's awful. And then right when we're like two minutes after we walked in, the second plane hit. So I think one of my friends, one of her family members, I think it was her sister was in there. She actually managed to make it out. She's one of the civilians that probably, whether it was courageous coworkers and or responders, you know, she's one of the lives that was saved by their heroism. Um, but the next evening, I think it was, they held a vigil and everyone spoke and there was people who were super angry and want revenge and, you know, all this stuff. And I remember saying, you know, this is absolutely awful and we cannot get those lives back. But I hope this doesn't lead to losing countless more as we start going to war and pursuing, you know, whoever. And then fast forward, you and I are sitting down right before the 20th anniversary and sadly, there's an element of that. There are definitely some conflicts that, you know, lasted a very long time. We've lost, I think, and we lost more, I believe, than we lost in the towers in, in the, the military side. We've got the 9-11 cancers, which again, you know, that's not so much avoidable because those are responders. But there's a ripple effect. There's a huge death toll attached to this, which is heartbreaking because that was, you know, something that I was worried about. So... We touched on this before we start recording. So give me your perspective on that. Um, well, what I was sharing with you was that I think of it often. I mean, between working with the military and now having developed, you know, so many friendships with uh, members of the military and then having my fire department family I think that there's so much focus on nine on September 11th and the lives that were lost on that day. And like I had said to you, I always appreciate the acknowledgement. But for me right now, I think that the focus needs to shift on shift to the families that are currently in it and suffering and grieving. Um, We've lost so many service members, whether it was in combat to uh, illnesses that were caused by toxic exposure while they were deployed, to suicide, um, firemen, same exact thing, uh, toxic exposure, suicide, police officers. I mean, the number of police officers committing suicide recently is it, it's ridiculous, right? So there are people that are 
still living 9-11 right now that we don't give enough attention to or support to. Yeah, I agree completely. Well, you found yourself surrounded with some people from that that population when it came to Operation Enduring Warrior. Um, obviously, the Give team were attached to that, and they're local here. Um, and then Goruk, Jason and Emily, again, another military background that served during the 9-11 era. So how did you find yourselves amongst those great people? And then we'll transition <laughs> into your very powerful ruck that you have coming up. Well, I honestly, it, it was all serendipitous. And this is one of the reasons why I say that when you look back on things, there is a plan because I, if, if you asked me, like you said, when you were young, what did you think you would be? I never thought that I would be doing what I'm doing right now. <laughs> um, so there was there, there was no plan to this. There was a there was a bigger plan that I didn't know about, obviously. Um, but after I started doing yoga, like I said, I thought it was like the cure all for everything. So, uh, and the fire department was telling guys that went to the counseling unit, you know go take a yoga class. <laughs> but they weren't going to go. They were like, we're not gonna, this, at, the, at that time, just think of how different our perception is now of what yoga is compared to 20 years ago. Um, people really thought it was a bunch of hippies and uh, just some kind of crazy woohoo movement. It wasn't even considered actual exercise or never mind therapy. So, um, the fire department said that these guys were like, there's no way, but then they would call me up because they knew I was doing it. And they would be like, where can we go take yoga? Or, you know, can you, can you give us yoga classes? So I was like, let me, I went to a teacher training and got my certification. Um, I offered it to the fire department, but there was some kind of thing with the union and this and that, that they couldn't have someone. I, it was, you know, some political nonsense. So that never happened. But in the meantime, just serendipitously, a fireman who was also a veteran was going down to Walter Reed uh, for some kind of like a barbecue or something where the firemen would go and host a barbecue for uh, the military. Um, and while he was, so he asked me to babysit his son so he could go and do that. And I was like, sure, our boys are like the same age. While he was down there, he ran into the, one of the founders of Hope for the Warriors, who is now one of my best friends, Tina Atherall. And he was telling her about um, me and she was telling him about a military wellness program that they were funding in New York. So they had they had everything it was re they had equine therapy art therapy acupuncture like it was a really well-rounded program the only thing they didn't have was a yoga program so he was like she would be a great fit and what was happening was civilians were going in to teach yoga for whatever reason it wasn't working out so i went i got the job it happened to be in queens my oldest started college that year at st john's so it was right near his school being the italian mama i was like yeah i don't mind driving from new jersey once or twice a week i'll go teach yoga and i'll uh bring my son some food but while i was there um i 
somehow got roped into doing a Go Rock event. And it wasn't even with the service members that were in the program because it was that program was actually an inpatient unit for um, PTSD. It was like severe uh, post-traumatic stress. Some, some uh, service members were flown in right from their commands. I mean, it was, it was heavy duty. But the Hope for the Warriors group they're, they're, you know, a few of the people that worked uh, at Hope for the Warriors were going to do a Go Ruck event. One of them was in the Army, and he ended up having to go to training, so there was an open spot. And he said, oh, Denise, you could take it. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. What is it? He said, you know, it's like a tough mutter. I said, all right. Um, then I went home and Googled what Go Ruck was and nearly shit my pants. <laughs> I was like... I cannot do this. I had instant anxiety. I was like, I am going to die. I can't do this. But I showed up. And um, it was actually funny. The cadre that I had is no longer with the organization. But um, he didn't know that I was the widow. Now, our team was made up of, we had... Uh, a service member who had lost his arm. We had a gold star. Um, what did we have? We had a gold star somebody. I don't remember if it was a sister or brother. I'm trying to think of who the heck it was. Um, I know we had a blue star sister, um, military spouse. Like it was everybody that was on our team was connected to the military one way or the other. So, um, the cadre was relentless with me, like didn't stop from beginning to end. I was just the person that he chose to pick on. And I'm very sassy, especially when I start to get hungry. So it was like, we, you know, the banter back and forth, back and forth. Um, I finished the event. After the event, uh, Tina goes over to give a coin to, to the cadre and um, said to him, what a great team we have, you know. Blue Star sister, 9-11 widow. And he goes, what do you mean? Who's the 9-11 widow? He goes, don't tell me it's Denise. <laughs> 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 so she was like, yeah, you didn't know that. So he continued after that to do an event in honor of my husband. They surprised me. I didn't know. I told them I, they were coming into New York. And I was like, oh, I'll come in shadow or whatever. And uh they ended up doing an event in honor of Jeff. So that was how the whole, I got so involved in the Gora community. Then they started doing their 9-11 events and I offered to help be like the liaison between the cadre and the firehouses that they wanted to visit. And so that was the, how that relationship developed. OEW, I think I met through um, Ruck to Remember I would do that event. I did that event a few years in a row and I spoke at it uh, a couple of times. So I think that I met, I think the first person I met was John Lopez and um, I don't, I, I, my memory is terrible. I know that, uh, I think that was the first time I, I had any interaction with OEW was there. And then um, 
I would go and do, you know, they did uh, some run in the city or whatever. I would meet up with them whenever I could. And then they wanted to do tunnels to towers. So they helped me organize. I would do the run. I would do tunnels to towers every year and do a team for Jeff. But they wanted to come and join us. And that was fantastic. So we did that event together. And the give team, I just met through Lopez. And uh, when they first, uh, I guess when they first started, Brad and Lopez started talking, um, they were looking for some support around Thanksgiving. Um, The kids, I think, you know, a lot of them are going to be by themselves. And so Lopez, I was like, hey, you know, let me know what I could do and I'll do whatever I can to help support that. So, yeah, it's just like you said, it's this little golden thread. You meet one person, brings you to another person, and um, that's it. (laughs) Before you know it, you're surrounded by all these beautiful humans. Absolutely. Well, speaking of which, the the Tongs of Towers, um, the Steve Sillers event was the the stair climb I did with Rob Jones and his mom and dad. Stephen's mom and dad were at the top floor to welcome everyone. So another interaction. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. I've never done the stair climb. (laughs) Yeah, it it was good. The only funny thing was is I packed all my gear and um, I was actually going to borrow an SCBA from one of my FDNY friends. And paid for an extra suitcase and everything. And we got there and World World Trade had just opened up. And they were like, yeah, no, you they can't. They didn't let anyone wear their gear, right? No, no. You Basically, just running attire is all you can take because of the security initially. So yeah. I don't know if it's changed now or not. But, yeah. No, I don't know if it has. I remember, I remember hearing that from someone. Um, I don't know if it has. Like I said, I don't, I don't ever do that event. Um but I do do tunnel. I do do the tunnels to towers run. If you've never done it, it's an experience. Yeah, it's definitely on my list. I think hopefully I'll be in Europe this year because I haven't seen my family for two years, and they finally reduced. I mean, the eliminated the quarantine for travelers from the U.S. to the U.K. You still got to do all the COVID tests and stuff. If yeah, you, yeah. Even if you're vaccinated, which I still don't understand the science behind that. But um, I know. <laughs> anyway, well then, talk to me about your event so we actually connected you were talking in front of uh 1010 and you were announcing something so tell me what it is and when you know how people can help with it so i i every year i try to do you know do something and with the 20th anniversary if i don't plan anything what ends up happening is i get into this rut like um i will be home and put the tv on and i it's it just never feels right so um, I wasn't sure what I was going to be doing for the 20th anniversary. We have the new baby and all of that. And then uh, Danny actually called me and said that he was going to do this rock from Boston Logan International. I don't know if you heard him talk about it, but it was actually funny because he planned this for someone else. There was a police officer that is also involved in all of these groups, Gorak and uh, all of that, who had wanted to walk across the country. He was there on that. He wanted to walk across the country for the 20th anniversary. And Stokes, Danny was sort of like, that's a big undertaking. You know, you're going to need a lot of time off from work for that. And so then they scaled it down. And Danny said, why don't we try to make it you know, like a meaning from one meaningful location to another. And 
they decided to do um, Boston Logan, where the planes took off from, to the World to the World Trade Center. The person he originally uh, designed it for backed out. He couldn't get the time off, so he didn't. He couldn't do it, and Danny was going to do it on his own. And he asked me if I could help him with the, you know, getting into the city. He was like, it'll, said, it'll just be like a tough mother. <laughs> <laughs> no, he wasn't even, he was like, you know, maybe you want to meet up with me when I get closer to New York or if you want to come to Boston. And so I was like, yeah, I'll come to Boston and I'll do the step off with you and then I'll catch up with you in New York. And so then, uh, I don't know, a couple of, we, we, I don't know what, when I came, I was on my way to California. I was actually in the airport when he called me. So when I came home, I called him again and we were just talking about his plan. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do the whole thing with you. How many miles a day are you doing? So he was saying like 80 miles a day. So I said, all right, I'll just do the entire thing. And, um, then we decided that we were really going to try to make it, uh, sort of a movement to raise awareness Danny always tells the story, which I absolutely love about that picture. Um, he, I forget where he was stationed, but there was a picture like in the locker room and it's a, it's a very famous, uh, drawing of a fireman handing the flag off to a soldier. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Yes, I, I have. Yep. Right. So, um, it meant the world to Danny because that was exactly his experience, right? Like he, he was already in the army and then the world trade center collapsed and that began his whole, you know, all the deployments and all of that. So, um, in that, just, just keeping that in mind and then exactly what you and I were talking about that we always want to honor and acknowledge every single life that was lost that day, but also bring awareness to, um, the people that are currently suffering the lives that, that have been lost since then. So that's what we're doing. We're going to make our way, um, from Boston all the way to New York Hopefully, I make it in one piece, but I know I will finish. I have to crawl into the firehouse. Um, we're still in, <laughs> we, we have most of the uh, route laid out. We have oh, the last few days, uh, Danny's still working on. I don't do the logistics. He's so good at that. I'm, uh, I'm not. So, uh, yeah, and I'm, I don't want to. We're getting some really good uh, sponsorship. I don't want to say it yet because I don't have the, I mean, I have the commitment, but I just am not 100%, you know, like it's not actually in the, it hasn't happened Things all the way. Not dry. So I, yeah. Right. So I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but um, we do have a wonderful family that has an Airbnb that is hosting us in Boston. So when we get there, we're starting off at the USO in the airport and we will rock to that Airbnb, which I believe is like eight miles away from the airport. And then that family, I wish I knew their name, but I, I don't. Um, it's a friend of Danny's. Uh, 
they're having a whole cookout for us and everything. So anyone that's in the area that wants to come and wish us well or even join us, uh, they can come. And then we'll do the first day of 18 miles. And they're picking us up at the end and driving us back to the Airbnb. And then in the morning, they'll bring us back to where we left off so we can continue the next day. Um, yeah, I'm really, I'm looking forward to it. Brilliant. What day do you leave the airport? We step off on August 29th. Okay, brilliant. We will be in New London, Connecticut by September 3rd. And we will be taking the 4th off. That is our only rest day. Um, and then we'll continue down from Connecticut into New York. Beautiful. And you're ending at station 1010 at the end. Um, all right. So that's our plan. That's, I, I mean, I'm, I'm confident that that's what will happen, but, uh, we just found out that president Biden is supposed to be at the firehouse and that's going to create a huge security issue and probably make it more difficult for us. It's very frustrating when yeah. politics take over days like this. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I've, I've kind of joked about this in the past, the politicians always show up right before it's election time, and then you don't see them again. Well, you see them, turn them down, turning down, you know, health initiatives, turning down pay raises, <laughs> you know, things like that. But yeah, show the hell up when, when, it, when it benefits them. There's, there's a movement amongst 9-11 families. It was actually, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not speaking for all of them. I'm not even speaking for myself, but we received letters. We received letters from our attorneys to send a letter to the fire, uh, to the white house asking that he not come because it does take away from, especially for me at 10 house, you know, we, we can never on the anniversary go. I don't usually go to the firehouse on the anniversary. I'll either go the night before or I'll go during the week. I don't usually ever go on the 11th because you can't have any privacy. I can't just be with the guys in the firehouse. It's in constant influx of strangers, um, politicians, anyone that has any kind of affiliation, um, to the fire department, anyone that knows somebody, I guess I should say that, that can get permission to be down there is in the firehouse. Um, it's just, it, it should be, it should be a day where we can do what we want amongst our own little family, not have to worry about politicians and, um, any, anyone else for that matter. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And even when, when I saw the guys from tent and they were, I think someone, they were doing something with the station, so they're actually parking the rig outside, and they were backing it up to the parking space. And when they were done, I just went over and gave them some cars to the podcast. I'm like, this is you know free free podcast for you. This is what it's about. You know, thanks for what you do. Bye. <laughs> because because again, I I understand completely whether it's politicians, whether it's media. Let me be very clear. I'm talking about politicians. Doesn't I don't care what color tie you're wearing. A lot of them absolutely abuse their privilege and, and don't leave people alone. And the same with the media. I mean, one of the most like just inhumane things I think you can do is go get your microphone and shove it in the face of someone who just lost someone. Like we see over and oh, your kid was just killed. How do you feel? How the fuck do you think I feel? Get, you know, get out of my way, you know? So it just, I mean, I think that 
that's the problem is that it's more important to them to get the photo up in the station, for example, than to understand that the best thing you could do is maybe go on camera and say, hey, we were going to go to station 10, but we have too much respect for those guys and their their families. So we're going to go over here instead. I mean, everyone would respect you even more. So that way it's not about the photo op. You're still, Mm -hmm. you know, paying tribute to everyone that was lost, but you're being respectful at the same time. Right. No, I agree with you. I I always, that's something that I don't know if I would have been uh, so in tune to if I didn't have the life experience that I had, because I see now, like you said, when something terrible happens, it's like, why would you ever put this picture up? The family has to continually see this. And especially with the, you know, with, uh, the internet, things are on there forever. So when you show somebody laying on the ground or, you know, a grieving, uh, widow throwing herself on a casket or something, her children have to look at that for the rest of their lives. It's, but, but it sells papers and brings up ratings for some reason, our whole society. I mean, they wouldn't do it if people didn't look at it. Right. So, yeah, well, exactly. I always talk about those God awful magazines when you're at the checkout in a supermarket that, you know, the national Enquirer and, you know, all these hello, okay, whatever they are. And they're all just fabricating stories but yeah, we have to look at ourselves. If you're one of the ones, one of the people that buys that shit, you're part right. of the problem. Exactly, exactly. I did an interview after 9-11 and it was because the Daily News, and I will call them out over and over, posted um, my, like I was not notified of Jeff's death. I read it in the paper and they knew they were not supposed to put any names in unless there was a positive identification. And you know how it was not easy to identify these guys, right? They, I'm not going to get into specifics, but the firefighters, um, they, they thought they were easily identified because they were basically the reason more firefighters were found than civilians was because of the bunker gear. Right. So if they found remains and it was in bunker gear, they, you know, the assumption would be, well, whatever the name was on the bunker gear is who these remains belong to. But you couldn't depend on that because there were people running, you know, there were firemen running into firehouses, especially 10, because it was right there and grabbing gear that guys that were off duty were coming in and just grabbing stuff and throwing it on so that they could run in. So you had to wait for an ID and they didn't, they didn't. So the way that I found out was one of Jeff's best friends called me and said, did you get a call today? So I said, no, why should I have? And they said, well, there's something in the paper. And I was like, (laughs) so this friends of Jeff's, he grew up with him. He's like, he, he can't pronounce anything right, right? So I didn't try. I go, Danny, read it to me. Read it to me because I, maybe you're not reading it right. So he read it to me and right away I called Jeff's captain and I said, hey, I saw this in the paper and he was beside himself that I knew before they could um, give me official notification. So I went on, someone asked to interview me and I did the interf- interview purely because I did not want that to happen to somebody else. The way they twisted my words, like, you know, they just cut, 
they took little segments and like pieced it together. I was infuriated. I was like, I'm never, ever doing an interview again because I can't, I, I didn't, I was so naive to the whole media influence at the time that I, I thought I was just going on there to tell my story. They're going to put it word for word and people will get what I'm trying to say, but they manipulated it into what they wanted it to sound like. And it was terrible, terrible. Yeah. And it's, that's, again, the route we talked about, you know, the challenges if your healthcare system is based on profit from the sick, that it's not going to benefit the nation. And it's the same with this. If you get media from organizations that are set up to sell advertising space, you end up with this diverse, diversive clickbait, you know, horrendous environment that we've seen, whether it's COVID, whether it's BLM and police and, you know, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is, the rest right? of us are in the middle going like a tennis game. Like, what the hell is going on? Well, these two mm-hmm. extreme sides just do it. But yeah, but there's, there's a lack of compassion. I saw that, um, quite a few of my friends were at the Parkland shooting a school full of children. And I'm sure it was the same at Sandy Hook and, you know, all these other places. And the way the media acted on those scenes was disgusting. I'm sure there were some good journalists amongst them, but overall it was awful. What, yeah, I I actually, I've done some work with Tuesday's Children, which is a, another fantastic organization. Um, and they were started around 9-11, but now they serve any child who has lost a family member to um, any act of violence or terrorism, whether it's domestic terrorism or, you know, uh, foreign. So I have heard from family members of that particular incident and how devastating watching the news was for them. I mean, it really is so heartless when it comes down to it. I don't know who makes that final decision to put some of what they put on the TV or in the newspapers, but yeah, it's really, it's really terrible. I was saying, I, I think there should be uh, and there is now like a few good news stations, right? Like telling us the good that people do, because that's the, the media focuses so much on all the, the negative if you if the only thing you ever got to watch was the news, you would think that that people were horrible. But um, they just don't focus enough on on all the good that happens. I think for every tragedy, the only way any of us survive any of it is through the good of other people, and that's what people should be focusing on. It's similar to what. Um, Mr. Rogers said, right? Whenever some, did you ever hear that quote? I'm going to screw it up because I'm, I, I really mess up any quote I try to say, but it's something to the effect of whenever something happens, always look for the good guys because they're always there. They're always there. And, and in that same um, thought process, Whenever you're going through something yourself, that is so devastating. I think it's important. I know that when you're going through it, you won't have it in the front of your mind. But um, I know that it's an opportunity to become a better version of yourself. Every time you're that broken, 
you're given the opportunity to either let it eat you alive or you can take that pain, right? Pain is as powerful as an energy as, as love is, and you can harness that into something good. Beautiful. Well, I think that's a perfect place to transition to some closing questions. I love that. Um, the first question I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today, and we've, we've talked about a lot of stuff, or completely unrelated. Well, related to our discussion, I am going to say um, The Body Keeps the Score by uh, Bessel van der Kolk. That's a great book. Uh, it's a great book on trauma. Um, and currently I am reading, this, this is like a great self-help book. Now let me see if I get this right. Um, currently I am reading a book called, uh, the journey, no conscious loving, conscious loving the journey to co-commitment. It is so powerful. Um, Gay Hendricks is one of the authors, and I think the, uh, th there are two authors. It might be his wife, the other one. But um, he also wrote a book called The Big Leap, which is fantastic, quick, easy read. But this book that I'm reading right now, oh, my goodness, it is so, so easy to read and so enlightening. Every single page, I'm like, oh, wow, I could relate to that. <laughs> Beautiful. But I haven't heard that one before, so I'll add that. I mean, I truly do. You, you can see behind me, there's a big old bunch of bookshelves there. I know. I try and I try and get as many as I can from the list, but obviously I have to pump the brakes sometimes to actually have time to read them. But I'm always, you know, I, I mean, I have Body Keeps the Score. I haven't actually cracked it yet. I'm still... Still working away. I got a lot of guests. I got a lot of books coming up. So I'm, <laughs> I'm speed reading at the moment. But yeah, yeah. I, lo I love this question because it really does open the door to so much information. Yeah, I've been recommending that the conscious, the journey to co-commitment to everyone, because it's not just about uh, romantic relationships. It's just about how you, how your childhood, exactly what you were talking about, how those behaviors become so ingrained and the repetitive patterns that we establish and how that lays the foundation for communication and the way we show up in every relationship in our lives. And it offers you a way to unravel all of that in a really simple way. But because, um, you know, a lot of times we have the information. I know, I know I'm like this because uh, my parents didn't love me enough. But, well, okay. But what are you going to do about it? Like that part is not your fault, but it's your responsibility to heal it. So that's a really good one. When you have a chance, check it out. I will definitely. Thank you. <laughs> Well, the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh my gosh, I could make you a list of people that I think that you should have on as a guest. The first one I'm going to say is um, my friend Jason Bresler. So Jason and I actually talked a while ago and he mentioned he was writing a book um, so he wanted to wait, but I mean, this was months ago we spoke now, so I don't know if it would be a, a good time for him. Uh, I love Jason and I love, um, I love, I mean, I don't love the whole experience he had with the military and that whole thing, but I do love the way he has taken his combat experience and applied it to the fire floor with leadership under fire. 
great organization. Um, someone else, uh, my friend Tina Atherall, the one that the one that I that I had referenced earlier. She is a military spouse. She started Hope for the Warriors. She was one of the founders of Hope for the Warriors, which started out as a grassroots movement just to help the guys that had been injured uh, when they would come back to Camp Lejeune um, without their unit. You know, the unit comes back and there's a big welcome home party, but then these other guys would come back and there would be no one waiting for them. So the wives sort of got together and started, uh, just by they, they would run together. And, uh, then they started, um, raising money to welcome these guys back home. And now it's this huge, um, national organization. Tina now works for psych armor and they, make educational material for other organizations all around the military, whether it is transitioning back home, suicide intervention, uh, prevention, postvention, um, I, I mean, anything. They, they make all of this uh, educational material. So that's, that's Tina. Um, she also lost a family member in September 11th. So we always feel like we were brought together um, just serendipitously. Uh, who else? I would say that it would be really interesting to have a, a kid, not a, not a kid, not a kid kid, but uh, someone who lost a parent. Like I would be interested to see if my, like what my older guy would have to say about his experience because it's shifted so much from when he was uh, a little guy, not really knowing what was going on and your perception of death and dying is so different. And uh, now that he has his own son, how that plays into his, um, the way, the way that he frames the entire experience. And you've had um, some um, children of, uh, FD and PD that were lost even go into those professions too, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone just, someone recently, uh, I'm trying to think of who it was. I can't, the name isn't coming to me, but there was someone who, who just, I mean, there were a bunch of kids that graduated from the last academy class that had, my, my, uh, two of my nephews graduated, um, from the last academy class beautiful so, yeah so yeah. i mean like you said there's so many so many people out there and that's that's the beautiful thing about this podcast we've been talking almost three hours now i know i can't believe it's been three hours i'm like what the hell <laughs> that went quick um so let me see that so the last question i want to make sure i ask you before we go to where people can find you where people can find your projects now um what do you do to decompress oh that's a good one because i'm so good at decompressing now <laughs> I find that number one, I make sure that I get enough rest. That's my, you know, everybody's always on this keep busy, keep busy, keep busy kind of a, if, if you're not busy, you're not productive. But for me, I am very empathic. I require a lot of downtime. And I used to 
consider that being lazy because I grew up in a home where like I wasn't even allowed to nap. I would get in trouble if I like tried to take a nap. So um, I was like, wow, I'm so like, I'm lazy, but it's not that if I don't do that, I'm not productive at all. So rest is number one. I meditate daily. I have, um, different ritual practices that I do. Like I have a morning ritual of, you know, I get up, I do my meditation, I set my intention for the day, I um, go out for a walk, take my dogs with me. And um, that is I have a, you know, make a little gratitude list. And that is how I start my every day. Um, at night, I try to do the same as far as reviewing my day. And instead of saying, Oh, I didn't do this. And I should have done that. I'm just grateful for um, being able to just make it through another day, honestly, but I go over the things that made me happy and uh, recount my, my gratitude at the, you know, at the end of the day. And then when I go to sleep, I listen to um, meditations that are meant for you to listen to while you're sleeping. So uh, yeah, I do all of that stuff. I also, you know, I rock a lot now that I'm training, I have to, I, I've been rocking at least five miles every day, and then getting another workout later on in the day. Um, so movement is a big, huge part. I, you know, yoga, all, all of that dancing. And then I like to spend time with people that I care about. That's, that's super important to me, making time for friends, family, you know, I, I try to live my life through, I I call it, I I don't want to even call it intuition. It's like, I ask myself in the beginning of the day, what is your soul? Like, what's your soul longing for today? And then I am fortunate enough. I know I don't have to work nine to five. And um, I'm fortunate enough to be able to uh, attempt to honor that regularly. So my trick to decompression is really trying not to allow myself to get to a place where I'm way up here and I really have to work to come back to center. I try to stay centered. Beautiful. So to close, you you have a project strong and soulful. You have obviously a, an online presence. You you have the ruck. Where can people learn more about you? Where where can they find you online, social media, that kind of thing? Um, they can find me at Strong and Soulful on Instagram. They can, I mean, my personal Instagram is, I don't even know what it is. I think it's Denise Olson 0925. Um, but Strong and Soulful is my, is my business Instagram, um, which I'm trying, I just, I just started it. I actually started it last year. I don't know if, did you get to see that where I went from the first to the 11th, I recounted my whole 9-11 experience and how you could apply what I learned to quarantine. No, I, I missed it. No, sadly, that, that's the thing is I, I'm I'm a very selfish social media user because I don't like getting sucked in too much. So I normally post and if it doesn't pop up in the first two or three things, then, then uh, it's lost in the ether. So I, I completely missed that. 
Well, it's still there. It's like it's it's a whole bunch of po- video posts like the IGTV. So they're still there. But if anybody is interested in hearing more of the story, if they go to Strong and Soulful on um, Instagram, they'll be able to see that. And that's where I um, I've been doing interviews like every Thursday. Mostly I, I've been doing mostly for women because I'll, I'm shifting my focus. I mean, I still have all of my military um, stuff that I want to keep, you know, keep supporting military, working on PTSD and trauma and all of that. But I'm also being called to work with women specifically on, um, just owning your, owning your power, showing up as the person that you were meant to be. So, so I call it, the remembering, you know, we know the remembering coming back to who you were meant to be before you took on all these other roles that mostly are used to serve other people, whether it's your family um, of origin, the family that you're with right now, you know. So um, that's the other side of my work. I lead meditation classes around that. And I am actually in the process of developing a workshop for that. And as far as The Rock, um, Danny created a Facebook page called The Heroes Rock Boston to World Trade Center. That's on Facebook. Um, but if anyone wants to reach out to me for any other information, they could always DM me right on Instagram. I mean, the, my, my web page is being built right now. That'll be strong and soulful also, but it's not done yet. Okay, but that'll, that'll be linked to the Instagram page eventually when it's done. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you, Denise. I mean, it's so important for us to hear these stories. And what I always tr- you know, make sure I say at the end is I know that your story is going to help a huge amount of people, whether it's people that are actually really needing to hear this whether it's just educating us the masses on another perspective of, of the cost of that day and all the you know the ripple effects we talked about but also acknowledging that there there's a toll every time you know someone tells a story like you said it's therapeutic to a point and sometimes it can be you know peeling scabs off wounds as it were so i want to thank you for being so courageous and transparent today and also just being so generous with your time, giving us three hours to, to hear your story. <laughs> I don't know if that means I talk too much, but I want to I, I want to thank you for taking people's stories and holding them as sacred as they are. Because like we were discussing earlier, there are so many people that um, take stories and uh, use it for their own um purposes, sometimes misconstruing or completely missing the point of the story. So I appreciate your authenticity and uh, your desire. I mean, what a calling to take people and give them a platform to share things that are honestly, you know, they're difficult, but they're, they're, I mean, it's, it's almost the most sacred part of your life sharing things that are so traumatic, you know? Um, so thanks. I think, I think my grandmother used to tell me I have the gift of gab and, and this is how I teach. I just, I love stories. I love hearing other people's stories. I want someone to put you on a podcast. 
That's what I want. <laughs> I've been on a few. Actually, there is, uh, there's one coming up on this show. A friend of mine, Ryan Parrott, who's, uh, a, uh, uh, excuse me, a veteran Navy SEAL who now, uh, started a project called, um, oh my God, Sons of the Flag. My brain just blank for a second. Um, He's about to do some incredible things. I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, he's already doing incredible things. He's about to embark in an insane kind of fundraising journey, um, that I've been blessed to be a part of. So he said he wants to turn, turn the microphone around, which I'm terrified. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but it'll be, it'll be good. It'll be fun. It just comes natural to you. You like to talk. You like to listen. So, I mean, that's the joy of podcasting. Yes. No, it is. And I think that's just it, that long form conversation. I mean, you, you didn't talk too much at all. You just, you know, actually got to finish your thought processes. And I see this over and over again. I mean, some of my shorter ones, if there's not, um, you know, that, that true connection, which happens sometimes, especially people have done a lot of interviews and they kind of go into interview mode. Um, usually some of the short ones are just time constraints because I feel like most of these, I could keep talking for hours even after they stop. So yeah, yeah. I know. I'm like <laughs> that I actually, you know, it's funny in doing those interviews, I do them like every Thursday on Instagram live. And um, it's been women that I know that I just completely admire. And uh, so Tina, who I told you, one of my best friends, I couldn't wait to get her on. And, um, you know, I figured CEO of Psych Armor have it was the hardest. Her and I talk so often that when I was trying to talk to her live, I'm like, I, I didn't even know where to begin. I felt like I knew everything. There wasn't anything I was curious about. And it was hard for me to keep the conversation going. Meanwhile, I mean, when I say we talk every day, it's like we talk every day and I couldn't get a con. It was, it was the oddest, oddest thing. It was really funny. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's an interesting dynamic, but when you get in that flow and you're recording, I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, I listen to podcasts, how I got into it. I love podcasts and I, my wife's four hours away now in, in medical school. So we commute back and forth on weekends and now oh, I get God, some time to really, it, it, it's a challenge, but it's, uh, you know, it is what it is. But now, you know, I've got four hours to fill. Well, you know, this conversation would have pretty much, you know, taken care of the whole journey. <laughs> so, whole yeah. So, and you're engaged. I always tell people you, you leave your house. I mean, you get to your destination a little smarter than you left your house. So, you know, versus you listen to some cheesy DJ on local radio and you're probably a little bit dumber than you were before. So, <laughs> I 100% agree with that. I've been really like I, with The Rock. I've been listening to podcasts like, oh my gosh, one after the other. Um, because I, sometimes I want to listen to music, but I'm like, I'm out here for hours. I don't want to waste so much, you know, so much time. So I feel like you do. If I'm listening to a podcast, I'm at least learning something. Mm -hmm. 